and welcome to Game Brain, a board game podcast about our gaming group. I am your host, Tom Donnelly. This is round eight, turn five, and I have got the game designer with me. Hey, Trey, how you doing, sir? Hello, Tom. And we also have the opinionated gamer joining us, too. Is that your name, Ben? Is that what you are? Yeah, that is, that is, actually, that is very correct. Good. Thank you. Good to see you, sir. And, Thank uh, you for having me. Oh, dude, you kidding me? Um, ben, you kind of have to be on this because Trey chose to review this week the 2015 release of the Deluvia Project. And when I went on to Board Game Geek to, to find out some information about, you know, what, what does the community feel about this game? I think one out of every two posts for the entire Deluvia Project are written by Ben. <laughs> <laughs> we are. I have delu. I have del- I have created a, a deluge of Deluvia Project. Posts. Wow! Not quite a pun. Just wow. think two words that sound similar. It's a yeah. I'm not sure what that is, but it's, <laughs> it's wordplay. It's wordplay. Um, <laughs> It, it, it's a very interesting game that came out in 2015 and had a bigger uh, re-release in 2018. Now, the first edition was by Spielworks, and the second edition was by Tasty Minstrel. And uh, and we're going to get into it today. I'm looking forward to that. We're also going to analyze how games end. What makes a great ending for a game? What makes an underwhelming ending? And, uh, you know, and how does that fit into a game's design? All that and more. Gentlemen, shall we uh, talk about this week's game night? Heck yeah. Let's do it. Uh, for me, Deluvia Project was the highlight of the week for sure, but I also played some Teach You with the family and a little bit of Ricochet Robots we got to bring out, which is just an amazing underrated game. What about you guys? Trey, what did you play? I was able to, uh, you know, Maddie's been getting a little, getting free a little bit more, and uh, he was able to teach me Anachrony, ah. which is, you know, kind of a really interesting time travel game with some some neat mechanisms there for kind of stealing resources from the future and then having to pay them back or else you create, you know, time distortions that do bad things to you. Um, got another game of Lagrange, been playing some Fort on Tabletop Simulator and even been uh, circling back around to play some Teotihuacan. Um and then still kind of remembering, nice. I, I know it wasn't this week, but I'm still thinking about uh, playing New Amsterdam with uh, Elder and the, um, you know, he put together that, you know, what do we, what do we call it? The, the mod. Not the, he built the mod, yeah. Yeah, he built the mod. So, and so that was a very interesting game that the more I played that, the more I thought that was a really good game and I'm interested to play that again. Elder's really good at that. Elder is, you know, he comes from, he's been playing these games for, for a long, long time. And he just has a few games in his back pocket that he can always pull out and say, you know what, nobody ever plays this anymore, but this is actually, this stands the test of time and people don't notice. So he, he's, he's pretty great for that. He's got real skills. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. What about you, Ben? Um, you know, I also played New Amsterdam uh, about, actually it may have been two weeks ago, Elder showed it to me, and I also really enjoyed it a lot. I actually consider myself very lucky. I've had a lot of um, nice Elder time over the past <laughs> few weeks. Um, like, it's just been wound up just the two of us playing two-player uh, games. Uh, last night, we played Maglev Metro on Tabletopia, 
which we both really enjoyed quite a bit. I'm really excited to play that at a higher player count than two because at two it was fun, but sort of felt that with more players, I, I, we could just imagine more craziness happening on that board, which would probably be really fun. Um, we also played some uh, Form Trajanum. Uh, I, I introduced that to Elder last week, and he loved it. He loved it. So then we played it again. Of course, with, it's um, Stefan Feld. Alf- How is Elder not going to like a Stefan Feld game? There's always 75 different resources. It's it's exactly what Elder likes. True, but it is a really, really, really thinky Stefan Feld, and um, I think he was I think he was caught by a surprise. I mean, it always catches me by surprise by how heavy that game is. It's a really fun game, and we played it again with Alfred and Paul um, a few days later, which was super fun. And then um, I played my first game of Everdell the other night, which was oh. lovely, hmm. interesting, interesting game. I don't know if I was like, I don't know if I loved it, but I thought it was, I thought it was fun. And then um, I've been trying to get Arkwright the card game to the table for about three weeks now. <laughs> yes, you have. And every time I try, <laughs> there's like some terrible fate happens where someone backs out or a game of Fort comes up that everyone wants to play instead. And it's just like, I, I'm, I'm going to give up on the game very soon if I don't get it to the table. But I'm going to keep, I'm going to, I'm going to keep, you know, I'm going to keep trying. Push it. We'll get to the table soon enough. Good. I still theoretically would like to play that game. Well, I theoretically would like to play it too, so maybe we could do it this week. Arkwright the card game? Yeah, I would love. It. I, I'm, I'm, it's on my. It's way at the top of my list of things to play. Yeah, it, it looks actually really interesting and fun, and um, uh, I love, 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 love the base game. So I'm fascinated to see what how this is going to translate, and the rules for Arkwright the card game are like not user friendly, and so mm-hmm. it takes some time to sort of parse through them. But then it looks like the actual gameplay is pretty simple. Yeah, and, and for me, I think I said it on the podcast, that, that um, Arkwright was a, one of those real near misses for me that yeah. had so much to speak for it. I was so into it, and then uh, I, I just had a couple issues that, that kept it from ever getting back to the table for me. So if the card game can fix just a, a couple little niggling things, boy, oh boy, uh, I would love, love, love to see that game just, just tweaked a little bit because I, I do think the bones are there. Yeah, um, for me, it's not a miss. It's like the the base game is like a full on right on target. Hits my like gets my brain, gets my brain going. And well, I mean, selling lamps and shirts and and cutlery. cutlery? I mean, why, what what oh, a game? Yeah, it's a cutlery game. <laughs> I'm down for the cutlery. I game. love yeah. all that part of it. That's that's fine. I just I just I found some tile imbalance that that uh, that, that caused me some issues. So it's a shame. Well, what can you do? What can you do? Yeah. Um, that sounds that sounds pretty great. I think we have a lot of interesting games coming up, right? With, with uh, Fort, with uh, a Maglev Rails now, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, Arkwright card game. There's a lot of yeah. games that are slowly filtering out to us, and we're finding you know finding online implementations where we can play them. It's pretty great. Yeah, Maglev Metro. I'm actually really excited for both of you guys to try it uh, because uh, I uh, I'm interested to see what you guys will think. It was it was really it was just like fun, just a good fun game. Well, Ted Alsbach, who designed it, is uh, I love Ted. I think that he is an amazing designer, and my favorite designs of his are his train designs. He had some of my some of my favorite Age of Steam boards are his. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, when you design an Age of Steam board, you never just design an Age of Steam board. You almost always also design a new rule, a change to the rules that changes the game in a fundamental way. Ted does an amazing job with that. He really, really does. And so uh, most of his rail designs, I think, are exceptional. So big fan. Yeah, big fan. 
it was really fun actually just playing with elder last night and and and, and sort of hearing elder sort of he sort of will give like an update on how he feels about it if it, if he likes a game i'm noticing after about like 45 minutes he'll go this is a pretty cool game and then like <laughs> and then like then like they'll usually be like like 30 minutes later there'll be another update where he'll say yeah this is a really good game. So like I got there were a few of those, and it's like it's kind of fun. I love when he does that because it's like yeah, Elder likes it. Or you get the other the other version of that, which is mm, not sure this has legs. <laughs> no, he was he was totally into it, and um, uh, as as was I, as was I, and it was both our first time, and uh, I'm so excited to play it again. Well, Elder is currently moving across the country. He is um, heading back to Philadelphia area for a, a little bit, um, taking care of his mother. But uh, we hope that they have a very, very safe journey, and we hope that it is a short stay and that he returns to us very, very soon. Or at least, I mean, right now it doesn't it doesn't matter. But by the time the quarantine is up, if he's not at the physically at the table, I'm going to be very upset. Yes, for sure. Let's get to. The news. Good evening, Mr. Mr. Alpha, South American. All the ships and clippers at sea. Let's go to press. First up in game news, something that uh, Ben uh, turned me on to to make sure that I knew about. There's a game called Luzon Rails, which is coming out. This is about rail building in the Philippines. We just talked about how much I love a good rail game. Well, this one looks kind of interesting. It's uh, three to five players, plays in 45 to 90 minutes. So this is more of that. Um, shorter cube rail game type lengths. Uh, so Chicago Express, all of that sort of stuff. Irish Gage. Irish Gage, exactly, exactly right. Which it doesn't tend to be a sweet spot for me personally, but I'm always on the lookout for one. It, you know, a game that plays in about hour, hour and a half, that is a train game that feels deep and meaningful. I, I thought Chicago Express really nailed that. Yeah. Uh, yep. Amazing! So I'm always on the lookout for one. Ben, what do you what do you think about this? You're the one who turned me on to this. You know, I you know I love to do a yes and, but <laughs> I think that there was maybe I don't know what happened here. I have never heard of this game before, so I don't know. I sent you. <laughs> Did you not? Was it not? I want to say I love. I'm so excited. I'm so glad I sent you that link. But I, I'm I'm afraid I don't, I'm not the one that sent you that link. Or if I did, I don't I don't even know. It's I'm very now I'm like there's a mystery going okay. on. All right. Um, I, I definitely sent you a link to something else, and I wonder if, like, it was one of those things where, like, you think your uh, clipboard has copied the right thing, and then it hasn't, and then I just sent it along without double-checking, and then somehow I sent you a link to something called Luzon Rails, which, by the way, I'm already very interested in, (laughs) but I wonder if that's what happened. Well... I guess I, I guess it's a mystery here. Um, it says that the designer Robin David is from Kildare, Ireland. So you know you're mm. gonna get you're gonna get my money, definitely. It currently has about ten days left to go on Kickstarter. I mean, it looks it looks elegant. It looks, it looks simple. It looks very well designed. I think that uh, that we should give it a try. Oh, totally. I mean, I'm looking at the Kickstarter right now, and it looks it looks really cool. I love this map. And, uh, you know, I'm a total convert to rail games anyway, so what can I say? I'm into it. Tom, do you have an invisible Irish friend named Ben that you want to tell us about? (laughs) Maybe. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe I have somebody named uh, Ben that's turning me on to all the Irish games. Ah. It's a great marketing strategy. Just message Tom pretending to be another co-host and we'll promote your Kickstarter. (laughs) I know. I mean, I I think that, like, I I really do wonder if, like, what I had copied and sent you was, like, it's somehow the clipboard somehow picked up this other link 
um, because what I had sent you was about um, a uh, a game called Inequalityopoly. Did you did you see that link? Did you hear about that? Oh, I'm, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, matter of fact, let's just talk about Inequalityopoly right now. It is okay, basically great. it is basically a uh, monopoly game in which, much like in real life, not everybody starts off equally. Right? People start off with different different resources to begin the game, and uh, as such, it's not going to be a very good game or a fun game for some, but it is going to teach a lesson, right? Yeah, um, uh, which I think is interesting. I mean, it's it's on Indiegogo right now. I, I think that, like, realistically, if you look at this project, like, it's probably not going to be a game that you're going to be like, oh, I want to buy this game. Like, this looks like it's going to be a great game for my designer board game collection. But um, maybe as a teaching a teaching um, tool uh, or just something that's interesting or, you know, you mentioned a few episodes ago um, about what was that game? Was it called train that you talked about? Yes. Train. Yes. Yeah. So it looks like this sort of like falls in into that category, but I also kind of love the idea of it. I love the idea that people do not start with equal privilege mm-hmm. and, uh, and how that impacts a game because I think that one thing is that with a lot of board games, we're always like very, very concerned about balance, right? Like there's there's always a lot of discussion. Was this balanced? Is that is that player power balance balanced? Is this balanced? Is that balanced? And the truth is that in life, there are huge amounts of imbalances for lots of different people. Uh, you know, you were born into imbalance, unfortunately, for for many, many people. And I wonder, are board games a way for us to sort of find balance in an imbalanced world? And maybe there is a lot of value in a game that is just like blatantly imbalanced, uh, which and there's another game that has been in development for about two years called Quantify that also plays with those themes of that. Like not everyone has the same privileges at the at the at the game at the at the game table. So I think it's a a really interesting uh, project in terms of uh, both as a teaching tool, but also in terms of making you think about some of the core concepts of board gaming. Yeah, I mean, for me, I know that the in the role playing game and the LARP space, this has been explored, and it might okay. it might be that this is something that more fits in with that realm than board games, where mm. balance is a really important factor. Whereas in 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 LARPs, you can have a little more free flow with that; you can do more things with it. Trey, when you um, when you first went to Vassar, did you experience Bafa Bafa? I did not because I came in as a sophomore, but I do know what that is. Gotcha. Um, so there, there are two LARPs that are educational uh, uh, experiences, I should say, that deal with this a lot. One is a game called Bafa Bafa, which is a fascinating uh, cultural simulation. You, the group of people, 30, 50, 100, whatever, are split into two factions and put in two different rooms, right? And they form mm-hmm. a society, and the society has rules, right? One society is very much the capitalist society, and they uh, basically they talk in English, and and uh, they they you know they they their main concern is collecting sets of cards, and they have these cards that have different values and different symbols on them, and all sorts of stuff, and they're looking for. You know, they're, they're looking to, to trade complete sets, and that's how they get ahead in their society, right? Um, so they start trading amongst themselves, and they, it quickly becomes apparent that together they only have so many things, right? 
like to, to make a real complete set, there's maybe one or two people in the entire society that can form a complete set because they're missing the nine cards or the eight cards or the seven cards and right and so on and so forth. Um, then the other side is the Bafa Bafa people, and they have a very um, what would what would you call it? Well, there's there's two cultures that essentially speak two different languages and yes. and have different customs. The second culture and yeah. the inter- and the interactions between these groups are very difficult, but they have to learn to understand each other in order mm. to kind of like make any progress in the game. Precisely right. Precisely right. Oh, interesting. The Bafa Bafa people speak a language that is... Like, we almost can't describe how they talk because that breaks the game. We we won't. Yeah, I won't won't get into that. What I will say is is that they they definitely have societal rules that they cannot directly communicate to you. So some of the things that the people from the capitalist society come in looking to do are offensive to them. And how do you deal with that, right? Or it's it's the things that you shouldn't do. And then what happens when they discover that these natives have a lot of those sevens, eights, and nines that they need very much, and the natives, the, the people in the Bafa Bafa side, don't seem to understand that these have any value whatsoever. And how do you deal with that? What do you? How do you negotiate all of this sort of stuff? Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. The other one is something called SIMSOC, which stands for Simulated Society. And this mm. is a this is a much larger. I, I own this, and this is a much larger uh, simulation, cultural simulation, where there are several different groups that are put into several different rooms, and it is very much what uh, what what the game you just mentioned, Ben, is about, which is that they do not start with equal resources at all. And what do what do you do? And the emergent gameplay for both of these games that I'm mentioning, the emergent gameplay is the fascinating thing because something happens when you are simulating a situation, right? When you're told, okay, you're, you're, the goal of your society is to do well. To do well is to collect complete sets. You put on this person. You could play the game a million different ways, but people tend to put on that persona of that... You know, that, that, that greedy when it all costs capitalist, right? And it mm-hmm. does interesting things to a person that is standing outside and has been given a different role to play with a, with a different rule system. Well, the, the, the society in Simsoc that has the least resources, right, that is really, really, that it, frankly, is in trouble, is in crisis to some degree. Um, the way that they interact with the other societies, the way the other societies interact with them is fascinating that it's never the same, but it, it, but it almost always has all these interesting cultural mirrors to imperialism and colonialism. And, uh, um, it's, it's just fascinating. So it, just, to, just to add to the discussion and say that yeah. there are a lot of interesting things in the LARP, more in the educational space, really, than the, yeah. than the LARP space. And this, and this game, by the way, I believe uh, Indiopoly was designed by a, a former teacher. Um, Equalityopoly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did I say <laughs> Indiopoly? No, Inequalityopoly. Inequalityopoly, I believe, is designed by a former teacher. So, uh, the, you know, this is a teacher who comes. This is so, the designer is someone who comes from a background of education. Um, so fascinating. I love. I I love the, what you just described with yeah. both of those games. I love that. I love when games can actually um, create a, a a learning experience. You know, and mm-hmm. and and one thing that we've seen over the past few months a lot is it's a video that seems to come up a lot 
whenever we have um, like a, a big flare up about with racial tensions. Uh, I forget her name, but she's an educator. She's an older lady, and she has all these great videos where she basically goes into classrooms and and teaches kids about racism. And if you think about it, there's sort of like a game element of it where she says, if you have blue eyes, if you have brown eyes, you are not going to get certain privileges in this classroom. And over the course of that like class, by the end, the kids with brown eyes are like crying and like, this isn't fair. Or this isn't fair. You're always you're so mean to me. It's like, well, guess what? That's racism. But if you think about it, there's sort of like a game element to that. And and it can be it, it's it's such a powerful tool. And so it's really cool to see when someone decides to use gaming to teach uh, to make greater points, you know, 100 percent. Hundred percent. Yeah, and back to your original point, though. Like, I mean, it, it it is a point that, like, when we play board games, do we take it for granted that the point of playing board games is to have fun? Yeah. Like, that shouldn't. That's not necessarily a given. I mean, the the you know, as an art form or as a medium, it can be much broader than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, anyone that's played a board game with Dimitri knows that the goal is. <laughs> it's not about. It fun. can't always yeah. be about fun. <laughs> anyone who's played Rising Sun knows that sometimes fun doesn't have to come into the equation. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Opinionated gamer. Shots fired. Shots fired. Let's move on. Dinosaur World, which is a loose sequel to Dinosaur Island. I'm telling you, Pandasaurus Games, they have a a style. (laughs) They have an idea of what they're doing. Um, Trey, did you ever play Dinosaur Island? Uh, I demoed it at, uh, at Essen the year we went there. Did you ever get a chance to play it? I did not. It was too painful to me because I one of my many uncompleted prototype games was, in fact, called Dinosaur Island. Springing no. out of a design exercise I had done with Seth Jaffe in Arizona and a number of other designers years ago. But so, Those. but like Dinosaur Island was like a good topic for, hey, we're all going to design a board game, Dinosaur Island, go. Like that seemed like that was a great starting point. So, yeah, no, I've yeah. never I've never played it. it, it it's it, it's it, a good game. Solid. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I agree. I think it's a solid game. God, for the, there's some X factor that's missing. I have the full yeah. on the deluxe thing. The, it weighs about 45 pounds. Every <laughs> coin, every coin is basically like a kettlebell. And um, uh, it are is. Are there minis? Are there dinosaur minis? Sort in the deluxe version. There's sort of are. There are these little fun little plastic dinosaurs. Um, uh, it's it is a fun game. Uh, there are some things about it that I wish were. Fixed. I could. I'm not going to go into a whole big deep dive about it, but there's certain things where I, f- I feel like there's a lot of big choices in uninteresting areas. Like, oh, how am I going to allot my DNA? And not, not very big choices in the areas that should be in, like that where there should be. Like, how am I going to lay out my park, etc. And I know there's yeah. an expansion that fixed that, but yeah. You know. Well, Dinosaur World is not an expansion. We should say that it is a standalone game that takes place in the Dinosaur Island universe. Or I mean. Jurassic Park universe. Come on, let's be clear. Um, And uh, who knows? They they took a second bite of the apple. Maybe they struck gold here because the first one was pretty good to begin with. It wasn't. It was. I agree with you, Ben, that it was not. It it wasn't everything I wanted. I didn't. You know, I didn't buy it at uh, at Essen. Of course, that was. I think I played it on the next to last day when I already had more games that could. I mean, we would have crashed a plane if I bought one more game. but especially with that one that's a heavy one (laughs) exactly exactly but uh dinosaur world is uh gonna be out in 2021 coming soon take a look at it uh next we know do we by the way do we know what what it's gonna offer beyond what what dinosaur island offers um it 
the description so far, I don't uh, remember quite I, enough I, about the game to be able to to be able to lay out that sort of stuff. Yeah. But you're still building a park. You're acquiring DNA. You're spending workers for private actions. You're driving your jeep around, and and and, and so on and so forth. So it's it's. It Maybe sounds, it's a more refined vision. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. We'll, we'll see. Nice. Yeah. We'll see. You know, like I said with, uh, with Arkwright, for me, it was a near miss. And I, I think Dinosaur Island was maybe a little bit more of a miss than a near miss. But I, I thought the bones of it were pretty, pretty interesting. And uh, I, I think it, 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 with a little refinement, it could be a really great game. And so maybe Dinosaur World will be that. We'll it see. had good bones. Good bo- Dinosaur bones. I said that Big twice. dinosaur bones. Yeah. Uh, Capstone Games, are, uh, I think we can safely say, is probably our favorite publisher at the moment. They are just crushing it. Uh, they have a new game called Cloud Age coming out from Alexander Pfister, the designer of the number one ranked Game Brain board game, Great Western Trail. Cloud Age, strategy game, one to four players, a dystopian world in which a secret society called Cloud sabotaged oil production sites to destabilize the world and the resulting environmental catastrophe has had disastrous effects. Now we're flying around in airships searching for a better life. How fitting this description for our game today, isn't it? Are they building a cloud city? You are building a cloud city. You are battling with cloud militia. You are doing Mm. all of the effect. You're looking for a better life. I don't think it's building a cloud city per se, but you're definitely... Uh, flitting about and having wars in the air. And it sounds like he's got an innovative card sleeving system, which sounds a little bit like the Mystic Veil-esque situation uh, going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Which Maybe. um, I think the... um, So very wrong about games pointed out this isn't actually the same as as Mystic Veil, so I don't know what that means. But if it's Fister, we're going to try it. Oh, hell, sure. heck yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. We're absolutely going to try it. So, you know. And I'm so, yeah. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, I'm so glad it's taking place in a fantasy setting for once because he's really <laughs> gotten in trouble. Like, he has really stepped in it with, like, some great designs. And uh, I'm just glad that he, I think he has listened to what people have said. <laughs> it's like, guess what? This one, not taking place in the real world at any time that uh, where there were issues. Okay, we're just going to go into some faraway place. Well, Matt and Jennifer and I recently had a, uh, a conversation with Alexander Fister online um, about something that may be related to that. I don't, I don't think we're at liberty to talk about it, but um, he asked for our opinion on uh, on something game design related, and um, it was it was an honor to be able to, to speak to him really briefly. That's but, great. Yeah, Love that. yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. You know, we, I'm glad uh, that he reached out to you guys. Yeah, well, he reached out. Of course, he reached out to Jennifer. Of course. Uh, yeah. So everything came through that, but uh, yeah, it was it was great. Was very, <laughs> you, you were present. I was I was there. <laughs> <laughs> the room where it happened. I was in the room where it happened. <laughs> the room where it happened. The room where it happened. Next up, Rolling Stock Stars. Okay, uh, there's a guy named Bjorn Rabenstein who designed a game called Rolling Stock, and I think the theme for this uh, this version of the news is near misses because rolling stock was a really really interesting game that didn't quite work it was kind of trying to be a mapless 18xx game a really really rough and tumble liquidity battle stock investment train game 
um, that was, you know, that was almost like playing a spreadsheet, but but really, really interesting design um, that didn't quite work. I only I only uh, did a demo of it once, um, but a lot of people that I respect and that I know, you know, the Eric Broges of the world who who really know what they're talking about in this realm are like, uh, it's so close to working, but it doesn't quite get there. Well, there's a new version called Rolling Stock Stars that's going to be coming out, and uh, I'm just going to keep my eye on it, and I just want to let you guys know that that this is one of the more interesting designs to to come down the pike in in several years. If you could do 18xx and yet make it feel uh, a different, and yet still have that that bite and that intensity of it, uh, and it and play in and with a sh- smaller group like three or four people, possibly play in two to three hours, wouldn't that be something that you'd be interested in? Yeah, of course. I I actually um, uh, our friend Candice uh, wrote about this on Board Game Geek, and so I went and I clicked through, and uh, I was like, "This seems interesting." And then I clicked on the uh, the rules, and I was like, tw- I felt like it was like twenty five pages of single line text. I was like, "Oh my god, this is a lot for a card game." But uh, I'm not. I'm undeterred. I was just like a little. I, I'm. I was. It was like between that and Arkwright the card game. I was like a. a I was reeling a little bit, but I am really excited to try this one out. Listen, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I. I can't vouch for it because my my whole comment is that it is the you know it is the sequel to or the uh, the the it it comes from the line of a game that didn't quite work but was fascinating. Mm. Was one of those games yeah. that gosh I wish this was just a, just a little bit a little bit fixed. Um, which we said about a lot of things, but it is being put out by All Aboard Games, which, as we know, it, you know, are becoming the go-to spot for your indie train games. Um, they're mm-hmm. doing, they're doing all the all the amazing uh, 18xx releases and so on and so forth. So, uh, if you like the 18xx world, Rolling Stock Stars is something we should all keep an eye on and just see if uh, if he's made a better mousetrap. Because if he has, I'm in. Totally. I'm subscribed. Subscribed. There you go. Uh, next up, we talked about the Stefan Feld collection and how the his older games were going to be re-released. Well, we have details because it's on Kickstarter now. 17 days to go as of today's date. Hamburg and Amsterdam are being offered. It has definitely kicked. It had a goal of $50,000. Really? Did it really have a goal of $50,000? <laughs> Come yeah. on. Come on. It's at $733,000, so it has wow. kicked. Um, but the question that a lot of people are asking, both on BGG and on our board and on our Game Brain forums, uh, is is this is the juice worth the squeeze? This is a, a pretty pricey squeeze. The, the 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 buy-in for the game is $65 plus shipping. It's going to be 80, 90 bucks per game. Uh, that is a lot of money to pay for a, a, for a game that the original version of it cost forty, thirty, something somewhere yeah. in there, right? So people are people are having some qualms about that, and you know, I haven't weighed in on it, but personally, um, I, you know, Hamburg it used to be Bruges. I think it's a great game. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Amsterdam is Macau. I think I played it once. I thought it was a good game. I I'm, I don't see either of those being an eighty eighty dollar game. I I don't I, yeah. I, I can't I can't yeah. wrap my head around that. What it's a sixty five dollar pledge for the classic game, and they're showing a like a ninety nine dollar pledge for the deluxe. Yes, that's the yeah. pricing. 
Yes. Yeah, I, I don't. I it's I, I have a hard time accepting the fact that the Hamburg is sixty five dollars plus another fifteen for shipping. I mean, did I did I pay for it? Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> I didn't like it, but I couldn't help myself <laughs> because <laughs> because I and do I have bruises? Yes, I do. But um, I watched Rado's playthrough of Hamburg, and I I was kind of sold. I was like. I'm really enjoying this. I know I've got Bruges, but this does look like it's fixed some things for Bruges that I that that I mean I didn't even think that Bruges was even that broken, but it just looked better and I'm probably being foolish and I probably should just wait it and it'll probably come down to like forty five or fifty dollars. But you know, when you press like that little Apple Pay button and it vibrates under your finger and you just feel like <laughs> sun has like shone down on you and there's bluebirds like flying around. I just feel like I needed that at that moment. Well, here's the great thing. The great thing is, is that in our uh, our game brain posse now, we got about eleven people all total, and six of us buy games. Right? It's uh, uh, me and Maddie and Trey and Elder and Jennifer and you. So yeah. s- between six of us, if I don't want to buy something, I cannot buy something, and somebody's gonna have it. Right? And and we can always just you know once. Once we're gaming in person again, you know, you always, Ben, you always bring your little box of go- your bag of goodies with you. When you <laughs> my, come little, my little bag of goodies. I got my, li- <laughs> my little tote bag. I just come around like the creepy neighborhood person. I got my tote bag of games, guys. Uh, I'm actually just waiting to see a playthrough of Amsterdam because right now I've only backed Hamburg. I've never played Macau, um, but it looks you know, I, I watched a playthrough of Macau uh, yesterday because mm-hmm. I was now I'm now fascinated. But I, I really want to see if I'm going to just like throw more money at this thing, which I shouldn't. I don't have the space for another game. But yeah. you know, I have a problem, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> I hey. I am I'm honest about my problem. Yolo, Yolo. Thank you. That's yes, it. Yolo. I mean. Uh, I've only played Macau once, I think. I played Bruges several times. Uh, I, I thought Bruges was, was significantly better to me. So, but uh, yeah, like I said, one play of Macau, I don't really know. So, I can't really. Well, my friend Lana, I think actually Trey, we were both friends with Lana, right? Yes. And she says, I believe she says that Macau is her number two felt. Really? Mm-hmm. And, uh, Lana Berman? Wow. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's. I don't want to misquote her. That's That's reason enough to try it again, that's for sure. That's for sure. She's got good tastes. You know what, Ben? Yeah. You should buy that game. You really should. <laughs> you oh should, God! You should. Oh, God. Sounds like this literally game was my appropriately hands are priced right for Ben. Yeah, know. I do. I think it's. I think it's. I think it's the Ben's sweet spot in terms of pricing. You should really get that, Ben. <laughs> Heard a little bit, right? But and I, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Since I've already purchased, since I've already pledged for um, Hamburg. I think I'm now. I have my foot in t- in the door. I am now in the room where it happens for <laughs> this Kickstarter. So I think I can later on. Yes, they will on. take your money later to buy yeah. more products. They will. There do you that. go. Yes. Evidently, yeah. it, it it says right here that uh, Hamburg fits fits well inside a little tote bag. So that's a good thing. <laughs> Just in a bag of goodies, it actually. It, says. That's yeah. what it says. It's amazing. Crazy. Bag of goodies. <laughs> uh, next up on my uh, on my news is Maglev Metro, but uh, hey, we already discussed that. Yeah, that's um, great. yeah, Bezier Games. It's available for seventy uh, seventy bucks, basically, um, and you can. I think they have a ten percent off going on right now. It yeah. is available for pre order as we speak, and it can be played on Tabletopia. Is that right? Yeah, and and let me also just clarify some things for people who have actually no idea what it really is. Please. Is that basically you are building um, subways in the future. Where the, I think the idea is that you're converting subways in either 
New York or Berlin, depending on which map you play, you're converting subways into uh, maglevs, which are, you know, magnetically levitating trains. And what it's so uh, it's sort of like a train game the way you would think like an Age of Steam is or Railways of the World. But actually, it's a it's a subway building game. And the difference there is that, A, the tiles are actually in, in real life, the tiles are, are like clear plastic, but they have like a stripe on them of your color. And what that means is that we can all put our tile on the same hex and uh, it's designed in a way that we can all see our lines. And, and so if you think of like any subway map or like the, the London tube or whatever, like, you know, you know, when like there's like three lines that have converged, you see like three colors right next to each other flush. Yep. That's what this game does. And it's so cool because you look like you're actually building a subway map. And um, and the game is really all about like you move your you move your train back and forth. Uh, it, it takes an action to actually turn it around mid track. Otherwise, you have to go all the way into the line and then you have to go all the way back like a real subway. And you are it's all about like picking up passengers, uh, taking them to destinations, dropping them off. And as you drop certain passengers off at the right colored places, you sort of like boost your your subway car's capacity so it can it can travel farther or you can build more track more efficiently or you can pick up more people at once or have a greater capacity and you're trying to like make all these adjustments um and all the while your little subway cars going like back and forth back and forth so it really feels like a subway and it's uh it was really fun it's really really fun i de- at, at the very least people should check it out on tabletopia sounds great i mean there is when something you, about a good go ahead, go ahead Trey. no it was, uh, it, in, well it's my own Bias, when you said I was playing Maglev Metro, I assumed this was a Jordan Draper game. Mm. Right? Right? Yeah. I was just about to say, Trey, I was about to say there is something about a good subway map that's just that just warms <laughs> your soul. And Tokyo Metro, when you lay out that cloth map of the subway system, I'm just like, oh, I love it. I'm, I'm already, I'm transported instantly. I just love it. You know what, by the way, this is, I forgot to mention this on game night. Because you said cloth, cloth mat. I forgot to mention this, and I want to mention it because I said I was going to do it the last episode. I played Mandala last night with my boyfriend. Oh, how did it go? It was super fun, super super fun. We only played one game. He liked it. Um, really, I could not believe how interesting the choices were so quickly. It felt like every single choice in that game mattered. Great. Really, really fun. Um, looking forward to more plays of it. Great. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, let's do one last bit of news, which is uh, online news, which is that there are two new games that are available. One is available in the Apple App Store, and that is Cartographers is available for iPhone and iPad. Uh, It it is basically a roll and write that is very well regarded. And uh, I haven't played it myself, but uh, a lot of people say that it's one of the best of that genre. So if you are into that kind of thing, guess what? iPhone, iPad, four bucks, and it is yours. And then secondly, Steam has just released Root. So Root is now available on Steam. Stampede on over there because that is that's a big, big game to have a uh, to have a full release. It's going to be fifteen bucks, uh, but it is uh, it is available uh, as an early access game right now and. It looks gorgeous. You look at the you look at the game out there, and it looks really, really beautiful. It's a quality app. I know Jennifer and Matt were trying it out yesterday. I'm still kind of a root skeptic, um, 
you know, but beautiful art and like just just firing up this game from Steam because I bought it. Uh, it's got a great tutorial system and it has an amazing soundtrack. Like there's a jug band of forest animals playing music mm. that I found like I just left it on a loop in the mm. background while I was doing other <laughs> things. It's, it's very like Emmett Otter. Uh, but like I'm ready to buy the Root soundtrack album, you know, kickstart that tomorrow. I'm, I'm, I'm in for that. Dude. That's that's awesome. It's, it reminds me of uh, Mist or um, the, mm -hmm. the, the sequel to Mist. I mean, that this is a little more rocking. Like this is more oh, really? like puts a little hop in your step with the with the kind of root jug band <laughs> music. Awesome, awesome. Okay, that's it for the news. Let us move on to our beautiful new theme song for Games on the Brain. Wow. Was that Adam Levine singing? I can't tell who that who that was, but that was that beautiful dulcet tones. It's one of those um those French robots. <laughs> you know. Surprisingly whimsical. Felt like there was like a series of harps back there. It really was. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I loved it. Um wow. I I'll, I'll go first on my brain right now is Imperial Struggle. Um I I'm teaching uh, my son Aiden to to play it. And just in the teaching process, I, I didn't even get through a full teach because I kept digressing, talking about why this element is amazing about the game and why it fits in so well with this other element of the game and things like that. It really is a, a an amazing design. I'm completely, completely obsessed with uh, with Imperial Struggle and cannot wait to play it more. And uh, I'm hoping to get my son hooked on it so that... Uh, I have a real-life opponent to play many, 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 many times. It is one of those things that uh, the, the decision space is so, so meaningful all the time. Every single thing you do in that game, you have to factor in like three or four different uh, elements to figure out what your, what your best move is. And Man, it, it is... I thought Twilight Struggle was about as as brain burnery as you could get in a two person one versus one game. Boy, was I wrong! Imperial Struggle, absolutely amazing. Trey, what about you? What's what's in your brain? Well, first, I'm I'm disturbed that you referred to your son as your real life opponent. I think that's <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he is the game is on 17. my brain. Sadly, the MMO MMO world has sucked me back in. Uh -oh. I've been playing uh, the Crowfall beta. Uh, with friend of the pod David Gillison, um, this is kind of like the spiritual sequel to Shadowbane from over ten years ago. So this is a kind of PvP-focused uh, MMO game. You know, if you take take out all the uh, the PVE rating of like something like World of Warcraft and just get down to the running around and and uh, murdering other people and roving bands of murder hobos, then you have uh, Crowfall, and so that's in beta now, and I've been playing that. You had me at Murder Hobo. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Ben? Um, pretty much all the games that uh, that that I played this week: Maglev Metro, Form Trajanum, um, uh, Mandala. Sort of been thinking about the cost a little bit, which we talked about a few weeks ago. I yeah. think I might bring it up later this episode too. Um, thinking about Mercado de, de Lisboa looks sort of interesting. Looks like a fun game. I just want sort of want to try it out. Um, 
Think about, uh, uh, you know, uh, there was, oh, Maria. Maria's a little bit on my mind because um, I still haven't played it after all these years. And <laughs> I was I woke up thinking about it today. So it's literally on my mind. Uh, but well, I would I say pro- actually. I promised to I teach think- it to you and to play it with you. And then, you know, then a virus swept the entire world. I know. I know. But it, it'll, it will happen. I know. And 18 Chesapeake is sort of always on my mind. But Arkwright, the card game, I would say right now, I'm really like a top of mind would be Maglev Metro and Arkwright the card game. Those are the ones that are occupying a lot of space in my brain at the moment. Awesome. Awesome. It's a, it's interesting. We have a lot of games that we could be thinking about. I'm also thinking about Fort quite a bit. Um, Did you, was it good, by the way? So, I, like, I, I, no, no, no. I, I'm thinking about it. it because I have not played it yet. Everyone else is playing it. They're, they're playing it a lot. I've, I've read the rules. I know how to play. I'm, di- I'm, I'm dying to find, to carve out a moment. Uh, I think that uh, my wife has started school. It, it's, it started up. So I think that um, rather than all hands on deck, uh, everyone in a, in, in a crisis mode trying to, to get ready for school, I think that's going to abate fairly soon and i should be able to play some more games um and when that happens all hands on card decks yes fort will definitely be at the top of that list and by the way we should say that uh i believe that uh there is a 95 percent chance that next week the uh host of this podcast is going to be matt robinson what yes Yes, it, it, we mentioned earlier that he was uh, starting to carve out some more time for, for the games. Well, guess what? He's carving out enough time that uh, we are probably going to, he and I are going to uh, go to split duties where he will host a week, I'll host a week, and that way uh, each of us has two weeks to prepare for our, for our next uh, next review and next episode. I, I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be so great to have him back on the mic. That's great. And, you know, if he started in two weeks from now, then he could start technically in a fortnight. Wow. See wow. see what I did there? Oh. That was great, Dimitri. Just yeah. Thank you. Really, there is, there is something about Dimitri and Ben, and it's really freaking me out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's. I, I was trigger, I was gonna try to draw some parallels, but I'll just. I'll, I'll just say thank you. There thank you, you go. That's right. It's a, it's high praise indeed. Uh, the update <laughs> on the eight by eight challenge is we still have an eight by eight challenge. All right. None of this Dimitri nonsense of just getting rid of it. Okay. We have a few more games to get through to finish it off, but we're getting really really close. We we need to play some PAX games is what we need to do. So we gotta gotta get out there and make sure make that happen, and then that leads us to the review. We are going to be talking about the Deluvia project. It was originally in 2015. The designer is Alexandra Garcia, and the artist is Harold Liesky, who was our artist last week, and Katie Welch. And the publisher, uh, the original publisher was Spielworks, but the more recent version, the 2018 release, was put out by Tasty Minstrel Games, Seth Jaffe and company, fan of the pod and we are mindy's yeah and we are we are fans of them uh trey why don't you tell us a little bit about deluvia project okay so the story of deluvia project is that a doomed mankind is relocating by constructing a futuristic city in the clouds and as a player you are playing essentially competing developers who are helped 
build this city and facilitate humanity's transition to a cloud-based existence. Uh, you score points in this game for being recognized as someone who has grown the city's population or facilitated its growth. And like the key word here is recognized. Uh, more on that later. So I don't, uh, I, don't, I don't have to actually do anything. I can just be recognized for doing things. You have to do things and be recognized ah. for it. Prestige. Ceremonial plaque on a, on a cloud. Got it. Getting your prestige is as important as the things you actually do. You need to be recognized for what you do in this game. Um, I would say the core of the game, most of it, it's kind of like it's uh, there's a beginning segment of each round and then a secondary segment. The core of it is worker placement. Mm-hmm. Um, you may place workers on a single action, uh, but you can place multiple workers at the same time. So sometimes, like, if it's a grab resource action, you can place one and grab one, but you can also place three and grab three. So there's some interesting tempo things. There's some other games that do that. Um, and because you start with, like, six workers uh, or five workers plus kind of a, a larger worker that's a super worker, it's a little bit more granular than something like uh, Agricola where you start with two workers and each action seems really important. Mm-hmm. This you can kind of divvy things up. Um, I mentioned, like, there's a super worker that we've just called the Grande, but I don't think that's what they call it <laughs> in the game. That It's just whenever that, like, you have a larger piece than the other ones, it's El yeah. Grande. Yeah, but there's a rule that if you go to a certain action area in the game and you're the first one to put your grande there, you're going to get this especially powerful extra bonus. And so where you place your grande each round is is very important. Especially and because like, only one yeah, grande ahead. can especially because only one grande can score per region. So if I put my grande into the money making area, you cannot get an extra money bonus by placing your grande there. You got to put him somewhere else, right? right. Well, so that's like a major decision you're making every yeah. round: is where's my grande going to go? And we may be racing for the most desirable grande positions as well. Yeah, <laughs> and we're, grande we're, can go where your grande is, but if your grande is there first, then my grande just becomes a very pedestrian, ordinary piece with no, <laughs> no special abilities. So wasteful. Are so peop- wasteful. Are people going to start calling it the grande? I think they may. I think it's like double fun in Tichu. I think we're just coining our own phrases and then talking about it as though that's what it is in the game. You know, this is a point, by the way, that I think we're going to come back to in the, when we start talking about an, analyzing the game because I, I think it's getting to something a little bit larger that is happening with that happens with this game. But mm. nevertheless... Yeah, I know what you're saying. I think Grande is a good term, though, because I think if you're a if you're a brainiac, you know what we mean by that. Like, yeah, the, yeah. you know, you immediately this is a a meeple, a super meeple of which you have one that's going to break the rules in some slight way. So, at the at the center of this game is actually like the map of the city. And so the various kind of actions you can do as part of work of this worker placement game is you're collecting resources, you can collect currency, you can change your turn order, and you can build buildings. What may not, you know, that's all very t- kind of like typical worker placement stuff. What's a little bit different about, um, or is not typical of worker placement or makes this game unique is that you have to kind of like buy the real estate you're going to put you're going to build on later like that's an intermediate step that's really important and because it's a cloud city you have to kind of grow out organically it's almost like you're laying the foundation of your buildings in the cloud city before you can build um on top of them right you're, and then you're reserving once, once you build your buildings right. you're building your functionality so you have a lot of kind of like engine building in terms of what buildings are you choosing to build 
in building your city building engine. So in addition to this kind of like worker placement phase, which is probably like 75% of the game, there is also a interesting what they call market phase at the beginning of each round, which is a four by four grid of rewards that are very, very powerful generally. And we're going to fly our little Zeppelins up there. And in turn order, we're going to kind of like buzz straight across this market, gobbling up rewards, but we have to kind of pay for them. Um, and so, you know, you we're choosing where our Zeppelin's going to go. And then like the reward that's closest to you is going to cost $1. The one that's one step away as you buzz across is going to be two, three, four. So like if you want to gobble up an entire row or entire column, that's 10 bucks. The problem is that $10 is a ton of money that you don't have. Uh, but mm -hmm. these still tend to be really uh, effective buys. And uh, so there's a certain amount of interesting gaming going on in terms of like grabbing turn orders so you can get the great market rewards and then you're placing your thing to like, well, I, I don't think Ben's actually going to grab this with his third pick. And so maybe I can snap it by coming from another uh, direction. And I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not. I don't know what other game kind of does something that has this like market phase like yeah. this. Like it's the more unique part of this game. It's uh, it's like I think it's actually like an excellent element of this game to start up every round saying, okay, you get to sort of like have these bonuses. Some of them are going to be ongoing bonuses. Some are once per round. Some are you can use this once in the future, or some are immediate. And there, it feels like to a T, they're all essential. <laughs> like, it feels like every single one of them is so important to claim. And, uh, God, you want them so badly. And having that choice um, uh, uh, is, is, is a great choice, especially because, I mean, realistically, there will always be some that you need really the most. Like, oh, I need that tile and I need that tile, but they're not in the same row or are they in the same column? So I have to decide which do I want? And then which are the other ones in that row or column that I want? And um, it, it, I think I think actually the market phase may lead to probably the crunchiest decisions in the game. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think they're, it's amazing. And the thing is that if you go, if you are not going first in the market, like everyone puts their, their Zeppelin down, but um, if I put my Zeppelin down and I'm going to go after Trey, for instance, and Trey pulls a tile off, um, uh, let's say let's say Trey has a row and I've chosen a column that's going to intersect with his row, and he pulls a tile off that intersects with my column. Then what happens is I will get like one coin of compensation. And let's say I'm third or fourth in turn order, you could theoretically get two to three coins of compensation. And money is so tight in this game that there's also kind of another game that you're playing, which is well. I know I'm not going to have a lot of great picks because I'm going last, but if I can get some money out of this, that could be the difference between between me claiming a piece of land or not. Yeah, I think that the spiritual successor to the to the market in this game is probably Age of Steam is one thing. The auction for the uh, for the special uh, abilities in each round is kind of a, a, a little similar in some ways. And I would also say Dune, strangely enough, in the auction for those treachery cards. It's sort of, uh, what, are the, what are the advantages you are going to purchase and gain that are going to allow you, during the worker placement part of the game, have just that little leg up that is going to allow you to accomplish plans you otherwise wouldn't, right? Yeah. Well, the way each, of, each game is unique in the way that the market tiles get laid out. Yeah, because I think like there's nothing else that's different from game to game, and so these market tiles can be like they can be instant 
reward, you know, resource rewards or cash rewards. They can give you one-time powers. They can give you ongoing powers. They can give you in-game scoring. So, like, how you balance what you're grabbing there is a big part of the decision. And so, to me, this feels a little bit more like a, like a through the ages type of thing, where yeah. you're grabbing up cards, but it's all done somewhat simultaneously because you have to commit to your like Zeppelin path, and then people are actually gonna execute it but like your your big strategic choices are made here in the market phase when we played our game last week tom for example you bought a single tile that gave you an ongoing power that absolutely defined your game and that you were allowed to kind of like jump forward and purchase buildings that weren't available to the rest of us but you were able to buy them early and that kind of defined your game yeah Yeah, i flogged that the heck out of that yeah i I guess the the reason i'm saying more the age of steam and dune is that it's a phase in which we are all all competing together for those for those resources the first player to choose uh, something in the market is basically locking down a row or a column that only they can buy they're going to be able to buy from that column before anyone else gets to buy and you can't place in the exact same column you could place in a row that intersects that column but just be aware there's a decent chance that the tile that intersects may be gone by the time it gets to you if you're later in the turn order and what's interesting, though, comparing it to Age of Steam, as long as we're going down this path, is that Age of Steam, you always have the same, you know, what is it, five, five or six options that you can sure. choose from. Sure. And it's always yeah. going to be the same. And here, it, it all depends on where it's laid out. And there's a whole puzzle that is just, like, laid over the usual, like, top-of-round choices that you want to make of how you want to power your round or your game. There's a spatial puzzle that's sort of going on maybe not a spatial puzzle but like you spatial considerations that have to be made and then you have to think about again if you're not going first you have to think about where other people are going and what they're going to be picking and you have to get into people's heads and it's like this amazing feature of this game that a lesser game would have actually just had this be the whole game a lesser game would have made hey let's we'll have a round we all go and we pick something and then we put in our little tableau, and then we smile, whatever. This one's saying, we're just starting here. And then we're, we still have a whole round that we're going to do. This is just your, your amuse-bouche of what's going to happen. <laughs> you know? but, but it does, uh, I, I will say, the one negative is that it does allow uh, chance to play a factor. Uh, we had a close game when we played this week. And one of the reasons I did as well as I did is that I chose to become the f- start player, the first the, the first player, on a round where the tiles just came out right, and not right. just not even just a little right. They came out really, really right. Right. There was no real choice for you there. The no. correct choice was but, was very obvious. Everybody, <laughs> also, everybody Tom, would have screamed and and jumped yes. on the on that choice. Yeah. It didn't feel unfair to me, though, when that happened. I mean, you, ha- you had first dibs on that great road, but you know what, though? You made the choice to go first. You took a gamble to use one of your precious workers to go first. Sure. And you also uniquely positioned yourself that you'd have enough money to go into that to take whatever row or column that you would have gotten. Because, yes, you got a really great row. Yeah. But you also had a really great game plan. And anyway, I'm not sure that that row necessarily like won it for you. Well, I, but, I think it, um, you, you could have taken any row or column and you probably would have done very well. That was an exceptionally great row. Yeah. Um, it but it wasn't like, oh, you just like lucked into something. It was great. You had also like you were you would put yourself in a position to take advantage of that luck. So, well, thanks. I guess but that's I, my, I do think my way of, of saying that, like those <laughs> there's you could wind up in a lucky situation, but it doesn't mean anything if you're not ready for it. 
Thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. But I, I do think proper strategy in the game is that if you select to go first, you must collect enough money to have that payoff, right? You must you must have the coffers to make the the choice to go first be worthwhile. And in order to do that, you have to have at least six bucks so you can buy three tiles potentially, right? I, I think that's yeah. that's well, kind. We, we that's, had rounds. We had rounds playing this where, like, that was a round where oh, going first had a clear advantage and then we had other rounds where you looked at the map and been like oh the difference between first and third here is really not that yeah significant so yeah. if i can put my game designer hat on here um i think i think that the 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 market actually you know part of this game is really interesting it's also an example of how randomness in games can be both input and output randomness yeah. because especially when we start the game and we're looking at that grid of tiles that's almost like pure input randomness we're looking at the setup we're going to make our decisions based upon what that that setup is but then like when you take start player and then now we're putting out the new tiles like that's more output randomness you like you got a good role for your the way the tiles lined up on that round and then i think like the next round i had taken start player because it's going to change every round yeah and then it kind of flopped and it's like uh well there's so many so many <laughs> different ways to go here it you know i wasn't as rewarded and that's not a negative it's just like it's an interesting thing about uh like i think when we're talking about uh chance in games chance by the way can be very fun i admit mm-hmm. that yeah spent whole segments really? on it and like, and that was, a, and that can be a really fun part of this. But like, just you know, making some hard distinction between input randomness and output randomness often they they overlap very strongly, as they do right here. Yeah, I mean, in in the words of Paul, if I do something and it and it happens to harm you, but I wasn't planning on it. I take no joy in that. <laughs> if it's when it's when I choose intentionally to to harm you, that's where the joy for Paul comes. I think there's a similar thing here, which is that it would have been great if the tiles for the next round are flipped up early, so the decision to grab start player is more meaningful and less roll yep. less roll of the dice. But unfortunately, that's not possible in the game because right. there is a space you can choose where you can pay $3 to grab a tile that is still remains available from this previous round. Yeah, yep. it's fine. It, it, it's fine. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not I, a huge deal. I was, I was deal. doing the same thing. It's like, no, you can't really do it because of that action space. Yeah. But you know, it, it's okay to have this, you know, a certain degree of, of luck in the game. Speaking of Paul, I want to play this game with Paul because there is a really interesting area control part of this game, which is the kind of real estate game on the on the grid of the city that we're building. And in the same way that we play Age of Steam and we're kind of butting heads over grabbing territory and, and building lines, there's an aspect of this game um, that, that can be very aggressive. Um, for example, in our game, I played very aggressively at Ben... Um, early on in the yes, game, you did. and kind of knocked, yes, it, you knocked did. it out. Um, <laughs> so, like, people should be more like this. Can be one of those games where you're going to be you know, like aggressively gra- gobbling up real estate, and that's probably a good idea. <laughs> and, <laughs> you yeah. need to make sure you have a place to build. And let's say the game scene. probably plays best at four because of that. Because with three, somebody has somebody has open skies, right? Somebody's got room to to grow. No matter what, whereas well, the map expands based upon player count. So, uh, but my, uh, I would but like to minorly, play it four, but, but meaning that, that like is, you were in my business, but no one was in Tom's business. But you know, there maybe it should have been like a little bit of a rock paper scissors thing because you know, I one of one of the things that I did not do in that game was 
I I sat down and I was like, I'm playing my strategy. I'm going to try this strategy. I I had a power that said you can build um, level two and level two three buildings at a discount because what happens is every round new buildings become available for you to build, and so. Um, I could build uh, level two and threes at a discount. So in my mind, I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to build a whole bunch of level twos and uh, I'll be able to build them for cheap. I'm going to spam the board and then I'm going to convert them, you know, over for prestige to get me a lot of like, prestige. But what I wasn't doing was I wasn't actually looking at the game state and seeing, oh, Trey is being an aggressive, you know, he's he's gobbling up all this land and Tom is sort of doing it too. And, and instead, I was just focused on my strategy and then just sort of got wedged into this weird little corner uh and the game it doesn't tell you to do this but you have to be aware that like if people are gobbling up land you got to gobble up land too because um all those buildings that you want to lay down there's no point laying them down if you're not going to be able to position them in a way that you're going to get um uh be able to sort of like get that to pay off with uh end game prestige which is generated by placing these little public parks around the board and anything yeah. that's any buildings that are surrounded by public parks at the end of the game are going to generate certain amounts of prestige for you and and if you if you position your buildings correctly and your parks correctly um you can wind up in a situation where you are scoring a lot of prestige and you know something that that is really unique to this game is the way you get your victory points in this game is through prestige and it's this very interesting system, which I actually like quite a bit, but it confuses people a lot at first, which is that right. every time you build a building, um, or you can also do this thing called like funding event, because you know it's a cloud city, so there's like these fans that keep it afloat, but there are these events. So anytime you basically fund event, or think of it like Bette Midler adopting a highway, okay? It's like, that's what it is. You're, you're <laughs> Bette Midler over there. And so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you're either funny event or you're the building the exact a building. same thing. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean, it's, it's, Trey was thinking Michael, Michael Richards adopting a freeway, but it's a similar yes. concept. Yeah. I prefer Bette Midler than Michael Richards in this case. But um, uh, you, <laughs> what happens is you have like a little house, and it's like a little house tracker, and and it goes up, and it goes up, and it goes up, and uh, it's gonna. Yeah, you know, it'll go up on a, go up this track and it'll be at a certain value, like maybe three or four or five. It doesn't necessarily reflect how many buildings you've built, but that's the number it's that your you're... contribution to the city. Exactly. Yeah. And so when you score prestige, prestige is scored on the big scoring track on the board that goes all around the border. And every time it passes by a multiple of 10, you get to score your points. And the amount of points you get are is equal to where your little house is on the housing track. It's basically saying, like, your fame as a developer has um, reached the masses, and you have created this this the, these many vacancies. And so people say, hey, I want to move to that cloud city. So oh, I've got five vacancies. So five people come in, and that's reflected, and you get five points. And so if you do like a if you get like a surge of prestige points, if you got like twenty five prestige points. You could theoretically cross over a multiple of 10 to maybe even three times. So that could be five points, five points, five points. And that's how scoring works. Really funky. Um, hard for some people to grok in a weird way, but very cool, I think. Yeah, the it's not just like you're it's kind of like most population points wins so like it there's a recognition thing it's not just that you're doing good stuff you have to be recognized for it so so there's a little bit of almost like um a concordia thing where like here's your board presence 
and now you're going to get rewarded for your board board presence based upon the cards you have. Mm. And like having more cards yeah. means you're going to be rewarded more times for various things. That's right. It's kind of right a enough. similar thing where you've got your contribution to the city, but like half of what you're doing is getting your own population, your own building to kind of like sing your praises so that you're going to be recognized more for what you've done. So like, even though this is like a cloud game, yeah. it's a really, it's a real estate development game and, um, and almost like a perception game. It's like, it's not just that I'm contributing to the city. You have to be recognized for contributing to the city. So yeah. I agree that that's kind of a hard teach thing, but it's also very cool. Yeah. I, and I, I think, I think of yeah, it, it, I, I think of it as combinatorial scoring is what I would call it, which is yeah. that it's not it, your score is this times this plus this or, you know, it's a it's a larger calculation than simply, OK, I have 30 victory point chits. That's my that's that's my final score. It is, you know, in, in Concordia, you're is a perfect example of this. It's what I have my board presence, but it's times the number of card assets that reward that particular aspect, that particular dimension of the board presence that is going to score my points. And in this one, it is definitely the how many buildings have I built times how much prestige am I generating per round divided by 10 essentially is what it comes down to. It, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it basically what's it also um, it sort of gently nudges you into sort of one of two camps. And I'm sure that there's probably a third camp, but um, you could theoretically build a few buildings. And I've heard people I've heard on 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 online. I've read online and on other on other, I don't know, in various other forms of media that people have been able to do the strategy where you build a few buildings but you just then like you just jam the gas down on that prestige and you just make that prestige soar as much as possible. And so even though you only have like maybe four buildings, you're, you're only going to get four points every time you do a prestige scoring. You're scoring that prestige so many times. It's like four, four points, four points, four points, four points. Or you can say, I want to have a bunch of buildings. So maybe I'm at like seven or eight um, and I may not have as many prestige scorings. But every time I do score that prestige, I'm scoring a lot more points every time I do it. So there's like a little bit of a tension there of how do you want to, um, how how many buildings do you want to have before you really start getting that prestige going? Yeah. It's, this is a point that I especially want to like hang a, hang a light on because I think like as Euro gamers, we're all kind of familiar with the concept of the pivot. You know, like there's the point in the game where we're going, where we're doing engine building and then we're kind of like switching into score generation, right? And like a lot of times we'll play a game and say, oh, yeah, I pivoted too late or I pivoted early. Like sometimes Paul explicitly plays games where he's gobbling up points early on and then trying to hold on versus other people's engines that are trying to do late scoring. And like this game definitely has that same kind of pivot dynamic. But I haven't seen it before where it's like explicitly in the mechanisms of yeah. the game, the way the buildings here are, where it's like every single building you build has two different modes. Modes. They essentially have like a resource generating of various kinds mode on the top versus a prestige mode at the bottom. And you can take actions to actually change the functionality of your buildings to kind of vary with mechanical terms saying I'm switching from engine building to scoring mode in this game. And when you do that it is really important. It's part of it's a really important part of the decision space. Yeah. And, and the thing is this with one thing we also haven't really talked about is what these buildings do is that you're not just like putting down buildings and it's fun. You're just each building, you know, they, it generates income for you and resources are 
so tight in this game. Between money and resources, you use resources to build buildings, and you use money to buy land, you use money to buy those tiles in the beginning, and you use money to fund events. So uh, there's, it's really, it's it, those things are so tight that it's important to get buildings up because buildings give you income, so you can get a lot of free stuff at the end of the round. And on top of that, when you build the buildings, you get to go up on that building track. So that way, when you score prestige, you have buildings to show for it. And there, there will inevitably come a moment where you say to yourself, if I do this, I'll get prestige and I'll get to score. But I don't want to score just yet because I want to get my building up another notch. But if I focus on getting my building up another notch, I'm maybe not focusing on grabbing that that land territory. And oh no, Trey just took those three spots and now I can't build my park there all because I was focusing on squeezing out one more building before I get a prestige. And these things all intertwine in a really deep, fascinating way. Because, like I said before, if someone's grabbing a lot of territory, you might want to think to yourself, I got to grab territory. But it's also really important to use your limited actions to build those buildings because you need that income. You need that income really badly, especially if that income is going to involve getting you some money to set you up to go into the market phase. So, folks, are you hearing that we're kind of so-so about this game? <laughs> it's a, well, we could talk about some negatives. We, uh, um, and we yeah, should. I think we and, should. And we should because we, we want to we be fair and balanced. I, I hate that I use that term. Continue. Yeah, you, you did. All right. So first thing of like, here's some complaints. Um, the iconography. Um, for whatever reason, I don't have a problem with it, but it's definitely I've heard a number of people be confused about the iconography in the game. Yes. Um, this is not the simplest teach. Is this something you wanted to talk about, Ben? Yeah, I um, I would say that, like, I, I would say the majority of people that I've taught this game to, i played this game a lot, the majority of people I've, I've taught it to have had um, emotional reactions to it similar to the three of us. But there's, there, I would say there's always like maybe like one person or so, or there's always, I'm, I'm always surprised there's always like someone like Jesse. We played this with Jesse. He did not like it. And, and one of, I think, one of his barriers to entry was some of the components and the iconography just got in the way of his ability to grok certain things. And, um, and also, it also got in the way of his ability to sort of like feel like he was part of this world. Um, it's something that comes up. You know, there are there are comp- component issues that plagued this game when it first came out in 2015. There was a lot of talk about how different pieces didn't match this color or that color. They looked too similar. There were numbers that were incorrect in the scoring track. There's all those things. You know, you also have uh, and you have a, a rule book that had ambiguities. Some of those ambiguities still they've cleaned up a lot That's with the right, TMG yeah. version, but we still got some, some rules linger. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, and we should say, uh, and we should say real quick, yeah. the the new version by Tasty Minstrel uh, ran into a production problem. There was a mold issue on some of the games that were released, and they had a a, a recall that they. Uh, was, I'm glad that they issued that recall, but there was a problem with uh, with some of the components. So this game was a little um, a little cursed in some yeah. ways. Yeah, with and the art style of this game, you might not have been able to spot the mold. Though, because the like, I love the art style of this game, yeah. but I think some people are turned off by it. For me, this it's got kind of this muted early seventies pop or kind of psychedelic art style. That, yeah, that to read to me reads like somewhere between you know Yellow Submarine and Mari Sendak. Yes, but I do know like I have encountered people that look at that art and it's turn off. So it's that's very you know, know personal. It's not, it's not clean. It's also it's not dirty, photogenic. Right? I have to say, I've been sort of, I've been following the Deluvia project since it came out. 
Uh, Rado did a run through of it. And also there was someone who used to write reviews on Board Game Geek named Mina, who was great. I, she had great taste. And um, <laughs> she she profiled this. And every picture I saw of the game, I was like, yeah, it looks cool, but it looks kind of like, I don't know about this art. It looks just sort of like this big mess of like white and light greens. But when you actually play the game, when you actually unload this board, the board is much bigger than you would expect. It's this big board. It has a presence, and it's. I think it's beautiful in person. It's, it really pops, sort of like the way Concordia pops. I feel like Concordia, if you look at pictures on the internet, you're like, okay, that's a map. But then when you actually put it out there, it's like, oh, it looks cool. All right, so a few other criticisms here uh, that we've had having played it. I think, I, you know, I don't feel like I've played it enough to really say this definitively, but one thing we acknowledged or seemed to think is that there's a number of, like, endgame scoring tiles that just don't seem to reward as much as they should to make the investment in them. Like, they seem costed wrong um, for some of these. Yeah. Uh, I think the game, to me, feels a little too long. I was having a great time. Um playing it because i love the game i don't mind that it runs long but this is longer than probably our standard medium weight medium medium heavyweight euro that we play and then like the my final criticism is is i do think it is a little too mathy for some people i and i don't think it's even the like you know prestige times cities things which is borderline too mathy um it's that they actually like carry it all the way through like, for example, at the end of the game, we're scoring our parks and we're counting up the number of, you know, building size spaces around the parks and we're adding that all up. And like then we have to multiply that by our, you know, city score. And like it ends up being this thing where like, well, I've got, you know, 24 points of parks, but I'm only scoring eight points times that. And so that's going to end up being this many points. It's like it could that could have just easily been parks just give you points straight up because our multiplier was like, you know, eight or nine at that point. So it's like, why not just make that victory points at the end? That wouldn't have been so terrible. I don't, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's I, to me personally. I, I don't have as much of an issue with that because, you know, you get you, you just move your prestige up and you see how many times you pass the 10. And you say, okay, I passed the 10 three times. I got eight, it's 24 points, and I moved my thing up 24 points. To me, that's not hard. I think that the, the math, I'm not saying that you think it's hard. I'm just saying, for me, it's not a challenge. But um, uh, for me, I think there's actually more math in terms of how you, you have to budget your money, and you have to budget your workers, and you have to budget like your various resources. And then you're thinking about how much money do I have left over for the next round. And then um, also, like if I do this, it's going to get me. If I switch this over to prestige now, I'm going to get this much prestige and income. And then if I get this much prestige and income, will it get me to score? And how many times will it get me to score? So there's a lot of just like internal budgeting, which I think uh, that. But that may be what I mean about mathy. Yeah. Like like you said, you're doing a lot of internal budgeting. I think if Dimitri were here, I'm not sure he would say, ooh, internal budgeting, that sounds fun. Yeah, but I, I think actually it is really fun. Oh, and I, I think too, that, but... <laughs> I think that, I think <laughs> that's that when, when you see this game, uh, the, it, it, in many ways, this is just, like, it's a straightforward worker placement game. I mean, it's just like you take your actions and you use those actions to gain resources, claim land, build buildings, and then you have a few other sort of like side things that you can do, but that's basically what you're doing. But it is 
it is, I think, a lot heavier than people would realize. And it is a lot longer. And I, like you, don't have any problem with the length. But I think maybe some people see this cute sort of like big cloud city game with just worker placement. And they think it's just going to be like a two hour game of fun choices. And it's like this is going to this is going to burn your brain. It is going to wear it down to like a mush, just so you know, in a way that's really excellent. And uh, you have to be prepared. This is a game. This is a long game. It is always a long game. Um, and people need to be prepared for that. Yeah. It's not I, crazy. Like, it's not Dune. No, no, no. No, no, it, but it's like it's, it's probably it always about takes a, me like three and a half to four hours. It's yeah. it's a half an hour to an hour longer than a lot of other games of this length. And yeah. maybe yeah. that'll become maybe that'll become shorter than when we played it enough when we got enough reps in and we're we're, we're a little faster on it, but look. I don't know, because there's always and there's always these deep decisions. And I have to say one thing that's kind of amazing about the game is when I first started to play it. After the first play one or two games, I was like, is this going to become samey? Because it's always the same buildings that you have to choose from. There's no variety. It's always the exact same buildings. But how the, the market tiles you choose and what other people do yeah. really dictates how you use those buildings. And the truth is there's many different interesting ways because you don't always have to build the newest, freshest building that gets revealed. You can decide, I'm just going to work on the small ones. And there's a strategy where you build only small buildings um, and when you build on these small buildings, they're cheap and they get your building tracker go that, that has to go up high, but they may not give you as many rewards later on. Right. Or you can right. go for medium. Your income big. And, becomes smaller that way. Yeah. So it's, it's really fascinating in that way. And, and one thing I want to talk about as a detriment a little bit is the, uh, income board. Um, it was, I think it was like a noble, noble attempt at a, like a clever income tracking board where you just the personal board you have like a series of you have this big cloud track a big track that's made of clouds and as your resource income and prestige income and and money income goes up you've got these little banners that you move along and it sort of snakes along and multiple banners like uh like it's like uh what's it called gaia project multiple things can be on the same track to indicate where you are with your income um it winds up just sort of being sloppy and uh unwieldy and people get confused because the housing track is on that too but the housing track moves a little in a different at a different rate Hmm. i kind of wish there was just like one big board one central board that we just all had like here's the income we should be paying attention to where everyone else is yeah right like it should be more central i didn't i didn't mind it terribly much because we are tracking four different incomes essentially in the game so that that's that that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of tracking to be done, and I thought it was. But Ben's example of Gaia kind of does this right. Yeah, like we all have those various tech tracks. You can see where everybody is, yep. and I could see, oh, Tom's ahead on the house track, yep. Ben's ahead on the income track. I'm doing well on the resource. You know, like it's defining our games. Like that should be kind of central core information that everybody's looking at. And, and as opposed to me, like having it's a little bit different than like an Agricola. Yeah. Was like, oh, Tom's doing, you know, he's doing his farm animals thing, and Ben's doing a lot of vegetables and grain. Right. That's yeah. this is a little bit more uh, central. All right. So I have a final yeah, confession. I, I, actually, I just, I just want to say one more thing about that. Um, aside from the fact that the actual banners that you put on there, they're like a little bit too large. They cover up too much information. Yeah. But um. This is actually the biggest iconography issue that you that you brought up. Uh, you when you talk about iconography, this is the number one issue: is that there's prestige income and there's prestige that you score, and there's no difference in those icons. And the um, when you build a building and the building increases your in- prestige income, that's the only way you move up your little prestige income thing on your scoring track. And any other instance where you would receive income 
is on the main track. Uh, and you know, for me, I had I had no problem uh, uh, sort of like internalizing that idea. But there are a lot of people who, whenever they get prestige, they're like, okay, is this? Do I move this one or do I move this one? Right. Do I move my my score track or this one? It's the difference between income and actual like immediate reward. Yeah, right. And yeah. it's it's like a it's it gets to which be is an kind of an age of steam thing too, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Trey, you were about to say something final because I have some final things to say as well. Yeah, um, and then I'll, I'll let you go after that. Um, so, Tom, I have a confession. Oh, I don't think I don't think I've ever said this before, but I was glad that you won our game with Ben. Like <laughs> first time, I was happy Tom won. Um, like I think that was a great game. That was my first game of the Olivia Project where nobody needed to teach and like everybody knew what they were doing yeah. and playing well. And I think that like my con- my fear about this game or my concern was that this game was just going to be an efficiency contest. Like because you're you're constantly like just trying to get a little bit of edge about efficiencies with your your actions and, and like whoever's like the most efficient might win. Like that was my fear. Mm-hmm. And instead, like you grabbed a tactile early that put you on a very different growth curve than that I've never seen been used properly or well. I've never seen anyone use that. Yeah, like Ben, you and I were doing a much more standard growth progression. Like our games weren't that different. Uh, and like there was a almost I almost had a fear of like some of these moves are a little bit scripted like the the zero round uh, building is very good because that's how you get extra workers and like I can't resist that I have to do it um, but Tom didn't Tom was behind us on the worker growth curve um, generally something you do not do <laughs> right. Right, but it worked mm-hmm. out, and it was also like Ben, you and I were on kind of a standard, steady progression, and then Tom, you were taking these turns that were like, turn one was just grab tons of resources but don't build anything, and then turn two, you built, you know, game-defining buildings, and it seemed like ours was much more of like this steady ramp, and yours was much more of, I'm grabbing, I'm grabbing, I'm grabbing this turn, and the next turn I'm bu- building, and so it was like on, off, on, off just playing a very different game. And I think like as we get to know the game better and employ those tactiles a little bit better, we'll see, okay, this game really has some depth and it has a multiple pass of victory and like, d- and, mm-hmm. and different um, rhythms in how you even play Absolutely. it. And yeah, I mean, I have, I have played, you know, Ben taught me this game, uh, however long ago, year and a half ago or something along those lines. And I told him that day, I was like, this is probably in my top three games of this year. I mean, it's way, way yeah. up there. I was really captivated by it. And I've, I've played it not, you know, I've I played it every now and again since then. I'm, I very much enjoy teaching it to people. And I really think it's kind of exceptional. And, yeah, and uh, you know, the, and the thing is, by the way, what, what Trey was saying about how, like, there are different rhythms, et cetera. One of those scoring tiles, and we didn't really get back to it, but you were talking about you didn't feel like those scoring tiles, they may be overpriced. I've seen those scoring tiles actually be have an impact. And in fact, the other day, you guys were separated by about two points at the end. So those that yeah. if you would have if you were able to somehow get one of those, that could have been a huge difference. Of course, asterisk because if you get take that tile, you don't take something else that gets you up to that right. point level. At one but course, um, yeah. But there is one of those scoring tiles is if you have the most workers, uh, then you get a certain number of points, which seems yeah, but to it's imply only like that there's four. A... It's only four points. That just seems insignificant. Right. But what I'm saying is that the fact that that's a scoring condition almost implies that there's a way you can play this game mm. where you don't take as many workers as everyone else. And that like, like maybe you do play, like maybe there's, there's a way. I, I've seen Jesse play this now. I played it with Jesse uh, twice now. 
And both times he didn't take workers. And he was very competitive with us because if you don't build your little, your worker building, right. you could instead build a building in that first round that starts giving you income. And like, is if you receive a resource and a coin, that's the same as actually putting two workers out. So yeah, uh, you can totally, uh, you don't have to follow some of the, 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 the rules that we kind of inherently follow with these sort of games. Yeah. So my final thing on this is that uh, you, you heard us. We seem to like the game. We have concerns. We have things that aren't great about it. But here's the thing about this game. There are 90 comments in the forums for the game. All the forums. Only 90. There's only 90 comments on this game, period. There is not a single strategy article. And, and out of those 90 comments in the forums, I think half of them are from Ben Mandelker. <laughs> <Right. laughs> I am only slightly exaggerating. He is, he is all over this thing. Um, this game is ranked 2,465 on Board Game Geek. I'm not going to say it's in my top 100, but I think this game is in my top 200. I think it is way up there. It is a very, very... Oh, it's top 100. Probably top, top 50 for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it might yeah. even be. I, I, if I had, if I neglected to put this on my top 20 when we did our tw- top 20 thing, that 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 it. I'm surprised if I neglected it. It may have just been because there have been other games that I've had a little bit longer. But it's an excellent game. Yeah, it's it's criminally unknown and undiscovered. And yeah. uh, and I think it is, you know, I, I, this is a fun episode to do because we, I really feel like, you know, we're, we're, we're panning for gold and we're spinning the, the, the plate around and oh, there's something something glittering at the bottom of it. And, and it's, it's the Luvia Project. I could not more highly recommend. Where can we play it online right now? Uh, it's on Tabletop Simulator. Mm-hmm. I would say, and what's great, it's actually got a great mod. It's a good mod. Uh, it's the yeah. TMG version. And I would say, for me, I mean, I mean, every any anything negative I've said about this game is like nothing more than a quibble. I think it's like right. an exceptional game. It would have been my number one game of last year if Barrage hadn't come around. Um, I think my only, I actually think my only area where I am like, oh, I really wish they could have they could have fixed that is if they had put just like. One more sort of like little sheen on the thematic elements. Um, I think that like you know all the resources they they don't even have a name. You can you can <laughs> right. come up you can name them things. I like to call like the white call clouds white. or whatever starlight, but they don't even have a name. The grande worker we we call it the grande worker. It doesn't have a name. Um, the art the the artwork of the board is really cool, but I think the artwork of the buildings. Like, if you look at them close up, you're like, oh, that's a building. But when you put them out on the board, it doesn't look like a whole bunch of buildings. It doesn't look like a city that's developing. Um, I would have loved, like, just a little, just a little more something. I actually went and I I pimped my copy just slightly. I bought a bunch of those little (laughs) Catan settlement houses. So (laughs) instead of using the cubes, because, by the way, this game also has, like, a shortage of components when you play in real life. It's so annoying. So um, I bought... Like a whole bunch of little blue houses, houses in every color. So that way, when you put them, when you put your um, building down on the map, it's not like a little cube that sits on the building to show what your income is. There's a little house, so it looks a little bit more like it's getting populated. And like, there's, I'm not a minis person, but there's a part of me that thinks like this game would have the most incredible table presence if they had 
uh, minis that you could put down on these types of buildings for these buildings in that center and see this build this city sort of like physically grow. That's a big ask. I'm not saying that TMG or anyone should do that, but it's like one of those things like, gosh, wouldn't that just be so wonderful? I, I just like if there was just like that one more little like if they cleaned up some of the income trackers, you know, now listen, this is this, this the art is done by Harold Leesky, who did the art for Lagrange, which we just talked about last week. He's a yeah. very good designer. But yeah, it, it, there's something something about it that's just not quite popping the way it could. I wonder what would happen if Ian O'Toole could get his hands on this and what would what would happen. But Harold Leesky is yeah. a very good is a very good uh, art designer and I, I think it's, he's, I love it's a fantastic book, game. So. I love it. It is a fantastic game with so much depth. It is it's just it's probably it's it's just like perfection as worker placement. I think actually the fact that, again, this game came out 2015, but it more or less it more or less sort of came out, I guess it was, I don't remember, it was 2018, 2019 18, whenever it came out. Late 18, so, yeah. Okay, yeah. late 18, but like it, to me, I got it within a month of receiving my copy of Barrage, and to suddenly have these two spectacular worker placement games in my collection was like a dream. It was, it was a gift from the board gaming gods. It is <laughs> like this is it is a great undiscovered gem. Like it is just so okay. great. Okay, I'm stopping you now. Okay, we're running really right. late. Fine. <laughs> Deluvia Project. We have some strong opinions about it. It is going to be a hard game to find. We uh, we will say that. But uh, when you have an opportunity to to find it, uh, grab yourself a copy. Write the wonderful people at Tasty Minstrel Games and uh, ask them to get that restocked ASAP because it is a diamond in the rough. It is a treasure. Uh, and we recommend Huge. that you check it out. Moving on to our member-specific segment. Trey, we're talking about endings. Mark Slutsky. Mark Slutsky. Why did you call me? John Smallberries. John. Uh, Mark Slutsky. Mark Slutsky uh, is a member of our, uh, our group on Facebook, and he posted about victory points in the Game Brain Facebook group this week, and I think they had a really good uh, discussion and I think Mark made a pretty good defense of victory points in that thread. And like victory points have been a little under attack, kind of notably last year, we all kind of tuned in on a uh, presentation that Scott Westerfeld did at Shucks last year. And if, if people are curious about what I'm talking about, you can go on YouTube and just search victory points suck. And that will come up with uh, his presentation and I'm going to disagree with a lot of it, but I think mostly his criticism was about um, he wanted like he's more of a writer and he wanted his games to have more of a narrative. And I think his thought, if I'm going to summarize it, which is probably unfair, is just that like victory points end up sucking the narrative out of games. I don't necessarily agree, but it, it did get me thinking about kind of like one of our game brain commandments which is that like when you're teaching a game, one of the first things you want to do is say, how do you win? Yep. I th also think that like the narrative of the game is important for understanding all of the processes in the game. Like, I think that's something that's lacking in some teaching. Sometimes it's like, if you don't get me with that narrative hook, the con I'm not gonna have that context I need for understanding the mechanisms. Like if you're just telling me, well, you can go here and you can do this and you can go here and do that. If I'm not constructing my mind, like, okay, I'm a real estate developer building a city in the clouds. And before I build my building, I have to like build the ground. I have to construct the ground that it's on, you know, yada, yada, yada. And that's going to take resources, but it, like that narrative con 
context is often important for helping me even understand the game. But if, if like how you win is one of the first things you, you say when you're teaching a game, Tom, maybe equally as important might also be how does the game end? Yeah. And often, very often, like this is the same thing, right? Not, um, not always, but know. sometimes, correct, absolutely. Right. But there is a difference, exactly. Yeah. Like sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Um, and I also think that like we should be thinking about game endings in the same way that we've kind of had this talk about mechanisms and theme and how do they tie together. Like the mechanisms should, you know, theme shouldn't just be pasted on the, the theme should, uh, you know, or the mechanism should reflect the theme, you know, the, the wheels, the interlocking gears of Zulkin as an expression of time, yeah. such a beautiful expression. But what I would say is like, if we apply that same logic, it's like, how a game ends say says a lot about what the game is trying to be and also the kind of experience that it's trying to create. Yes. Yes, I, I, I agree. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I do a little prep once uh, I, I find out what the topic is going to be. And this was one of the more interesting preps that I've, uh, that I've done in a long time because I, I really didn't think about it that way. But you're right. My favorite game my favorite games do not always correlate with my favorite endings for games. Mm -hmm. They can sometimes be a very different thing. Some of my favorite game endings are ones that are kind of more narrative, but there are great game endings that have no narrative to them whatsoever, but it's merely that the game knows when to it knows when to draw the curtain and it draws the curtain in a way that is driven by the game state and by what has come before. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I think like Paul, I'm sorry, Ben, why don't you go? No, no, I was going to say, uh, no, I, I was, I was going to, to agree with that. I mean, I, I'm not as, uh, staunchly against victory points. Uh, I don't see, I, I think that there is like great excitement in telling up victory points and, you know, seeing where, where all the, where all everything, I forget what the expression is, but where, the, where everything falls and lands, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. uh, seeing how that all shakes out, I think is very exciting. I think, it has the same excitement as tuning in on election day to see uh, where the votes are cast, you know? Right. So I don't have an issue with that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, this topic was fascinating because I never I, – I haven't spent that much time thinking about how a game ends. I've, you know, I've had passing thoughts, but not how it like what, – what do I like about certain game endings versus other ones? It was, it's been really a cool, cool thing to explore. Well, we could probably do a whole segment on victory points. And I think victory points are related to game ends, and that's how I settled on yeah. game ends. Uh, I mean, Paul, in his previous segments, has talked about, like, great moments. And I think a lot of times that's going to be inherently tied to endings. Uh, like, generally, like, the ending of a Battlestar Galactica game is always great one way or the other. It's very binary. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you win, your team win, wins or loses. That creates a lot of drama. I think that that would be what um, Scott Westerfeld in his presentation is saying he wants more of, and that would be fine. And by the way, we but could put Jaws into, the, Jaws into the same category, right? Jaws is constructed to have that, that big ending where you are either on the last part of the Orca and you have staved off destruction, or you are the last person alive in the water and you get swallowed by the shark, right? Well, that's right, because Jaws is, now that we're going to actually, I think, let's spend a little time and get into the actual nitty-gritty here. Like, Jaws actually is a player elimination game. Yes, it is. 
in, in, and like we don't actually do that very much. There's there's a few games we do in which the last man standing is the winner, but that's t- that's not a typical Euro board game thing. Um, no, like we and- play Skull. Like Skull's a good player elimination game. Sure, sure. But typically, we like those games need to be kind of shorter, right? Well, or or the old school method of nope, sorry, you got to sit around for six hours and eat some popcorn because mm-hmm. we we got the game to play. But I will say that while there are so many problems with those old school types of games because of that, those games do gain something for that. They gain great endings. So many of my favorite game endings are from really old school designs. Well, I think that I think that ultimately one thing that makes for a great ending is a big theatrical moment that we're always that will be like ah, you know. And I think that maybe with when you have a player elimination situation, it's going to create a situation. You you might wind up with a theatrical ending, mm-hmm. right? When it comes down to a battle between you know these two parties, these two people, these two teams, and then finally someone wins, you're going to have that moment of, ah, but you might also have that moment when there's a big reveal, and that reveal could be like, it was me all along, or it's in Decrypto, and like, these were my words all along, or uh, or like, and here are my hidden points that like, you know, you didn't realize. So I think I think that to me is, is the most valuable experience for valuable factor in creating a really fun end state yeah i mean it could also be you know everdell uh even though you didn't you didn't love it um everdell is interesting because it's one of those games that ramps and it ramps in a very interesting way at the beginning of the game the entire there are four seasons in the game the entire first season passes and you've done almost nothing and you're and you're like looking at the rules seeing oh you can have a maximum of 12 or 15 cards in your city and you're like how am i going to have more than four cards in my city and then by the end of the game you're taking these massive turns where everything you've done is building up to each other and and it does have a it, it does have a feeling of swelling now it may be more individual swelling because you know you're taking your big massive turn and then the next person takes their big massive turn to some degree but there is a there is a build that is built into that that feels very satisfying in terms of an ending right well it's like three act structure you know i think we talked about this on a previous episode that that uh, maybe it was the episode when we talked about what brings us back or you know when it, you know games are like stories and this is where um the speaker in that video you know i, I think i agree with him that there is you know i think the best games do have a you know they are a three-act structure they they build they reach a climax etc i feel like he was being very literal about it though like that there has to be a boss battle of some sort even if it's abstracted that there has to be a boss battle and if you have that you're going to have real stakes etc i think for me the three-act structure means that we have to have a ramping up of of personal stakes in this game and a sense of that like where we are in the last third of the game or the last section of the game is feels very different than where we were in the first third you know and that if you have that structure i think that probably you will have an ending that will feel satisfying usually all right let's real quick um go over just some let's actually look at some mechanisms of how games end um We'll we'll do this quickly though, Tom. Um, first, I, I don't I don't mind. I I got a lot to say about this. <laughs> okay, great. First off, like um, let's consult the Bible. Um, building blocks of tabletop design, an encyclopedia of mechanisms. I don't know if people have if this is a people's radar yet, but this is a a book put out I think just last year by uh, Jeff Engelstein and Isaac Shilev, 
uh, and it's really great. Um, if you're serious about wanting to kind of get into board game design, I think this is an important thing to have. Um, please, please turn in your Bibles to the Book of Endings, chapter 7, yes, verses 17 this, through 24. This would be chapter 5 in the Bible. Um, look, because, like, Endgame, what's interesting, though, is that, like, Endgame and Victory are are related. Um, like, same way that, victory, like, we're talking about, like, victory points can be both how we determine who wins and how the game ends and so like the the most common way that games well i don't know if it's the most common way but like the simplest one is a game can end with when a certain score is reached so like the example like for racing games this is you know this is one for one when you get to the end the person who wins you know is the person who crosses the finish line first and like your position on the track could just be is your score right like if you're playing mm-hmm. snakes and ladders is the example they use in the book you know the game ends when somebody gets to 100 your position on the board is your score okay yes. so some work that way um for example um Catan. yes you know when, can, yeah you get to 10 you win yes. the mm-hmm. end you know, ten or ten or more. You did. Then there's other games where they kind of separate this out a little bit, where the game is going to end when a certain threshold is hit, but that doesn't mean that the person who triggered the end game necessarily won. Right. Right. Like teach you is a little bit this way, in yeah. that like you can be in the middle of a hand of teach you and be like, this game is going to end this turn, yeah. but it, it doesn't mean you necessarily won. No, Tribune and Race for the Galaxy are both those ways. Race for the Galaxy, when the the pile, one of the ways the game can end is when the pile of victory point chits is expended, that triggers the end of the game, but it does not in any way determine who has won yet. And in in Tribune, there are a number of conditions, and when someone has fulfilled four of them, they announce that, and that then becomes the last round of the game. But it doesn't. It in no way says that that person has won. That's right. Like uh, Tuscany is a good example of yep. this. Like the game's going to end when we get to 25 points. You know, like this is going to be everybody's like, OK, this is the last round. Uh, even Fort. Yeah, again, I know you guys haven't played Fort. Like Fort has multiple conditions that can end the game. But like you're going to finish the round. Yep. A lot of a lot of these games are like end game has been hit. Now we have to finish the round uh, out of fairness. Is, and then is, like sometimes we have these games where like you don't finish the round and that feels unfair and people mm-hmm. argue about is multiple ending conditions an ending condition in and of itself in, in the Bible in, in terms of the way it's separated? Because I do find that yes. some of the most interesting uh, game endings are ones in which there are several metrics that can trigger an ending and thereby yeah. the the game being played to drive toward one of those endings for your own personal advantage is very exciting often. Yes, and that's in like you're skipping ahead to like number six. I like there's pardon. There's games like Fort... Or and or uh, Concordia that can have multiple endgame things that will trigger the endgame, and then there's an even subcategory of that that uh, the book would describe as sudden death. For example, when you play Twilight Struggle, Tom, there are ways to win the game instantly. Yeah, there are right? there are four different metrics by which you can win in Twilight Struggle. Uh, you can win 
by uh, triggering nuclear war. You can win by conquering Europe. You can win by playing a card in the late part of the game that will give you the win if you've met certain conditions. Or there is the most common victory condition, which is the points tug of war. If you get to if you get the slider to your end of the uh, far end of the scale, you win. So yeah, they're yeah. very different ones. I would say uh, uh, Glory to Rome also is like that in the play yeah. of certain buildings will change the end condition of the game to some degree, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Most, or again, I say, keep saying most, but a lot of the games we play are based on rounds. We're going to, we're going to, the games are going to play after a set number of rounds. Boring. Uh, boring? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it's the, it's the least sexy ending condition. And I yet agree. it, and yet it makes for sometimes the best games because uh, if if I know how long I have, then I can make more interesting decisions in planning. So you know, so you always have to take take into account the end of a game by in the context of how the game plays. And a lot of these games are are based on advanced planning, right? Mm-hmm. That's what strategy yeah. is. I mean, with like with with rounds, it sort of takes away a certain amount of player agency, right? Because like uh, there you, there is a there is a fate to this game and it's you know you're gonna have a certain amount of rounds to do a certain number of things and then once that happens once once you're done with doing those things it is over and uh it reminds me of what my dad says about baseball baseball Uh is his favorite sport because there's no ticking clock it's the only it's the only uh, like major team sport (laughs) that doesn't have that right everyone else has quarters or or something or the equivalent of you know like George and when that clock runs that, out yeah. the game is over <laughs> there is the, the upside to that which is that it you know when you are when that clock is running out in a football game those can be just some of the most exciting tense moments that you will ever remember it's some for some people in their lives you know i will always remember when uh when Eli Manning threw that pass to David Tyree and the Giants beat the Patriots in the last seconds of the Super Bowl. Tom, can we it, edit this part out? Of no, it? no. Well, that's exactly what... Is this bringing out any you, vicious It is perfect. You could not have said that better. It is It is literally one of the... It, it's the great moment in sports, really. The it's great moment. It's probably the best moment of all of our lives. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, but, but I will say, this, I will say the Miracle Mets, though, of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, of 87, that World Stay Series... Stay on target. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, but rounds are, I think, to bend to your point, though, is like rounds in board games are generally like the main expression of time. Like yes. we don't we generally don't play games with ticking clocks like and we're like excited that a game's coming out now that's going to have some stand timers or whatever. But like we're not going to play a game that lasts one hour like we play a game with rounds and that's the expression of time. And like that's pretty standard like Agricola is going to play 14 rounds. We just played Deluvia Project. That's going to play what eight, seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Seven. Yep. Seven. Um, seven exactly. Uh, every time, you know, and then we start to play games that kind of can that start to break these rules or or spin off of that. For example, uh, I was playing Anachrony with Matt last week. Like that has a minimum number of rounds where like the end of the world has been triggered, but that doesn't mean the game is actually going to end on this round. Like it can actually continue for a number of three rounds, up to like three additional rounds based upon player decisions. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. I'm not sure it, I'd loved that in Anachrony, but like that was interesting. Like this game can keep keep going. And then like Tom, I was thinking of um, a weird kind of hybrid between like score and rounds is something like Civilization, 
Yes. Like civilization has a minimum number of rounds because the real way you are like there's two different ways you're keeping score. Like you have a certain number of like what civilization points or whatever, but mainly you're you're like on the AST, you're on the archaeological succession track and you're like advancing on that track. And so like the game's going to go a minimum number of rounds for you to win um but like, are, you can win that game better... without the highest score by just being further along on the track. Correct. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things, I was just talking with Jennifer about this a couple of weeks ago. She was complaining about how we've lost the ability to play games certain ways. Like we, we lost the ability to play games meanly where in some games you need to. And Civilization is one of those things. Some people have a very advantageous archaeological succession track in which if they just keep plugging along they will never stop on it and they will move ahead and move ahead and move ahead whereas other countries other nations will have very difficult asts where they were almost guaranteed to be stuck and then they're around behind everybody else on that and so their game must by definition to some extent be to attack the people that are doing well on the archaeological succession track to slow down their civilization which is a very interesting aspect to that game yeah yeah they'll think, have they'll have other advantages and that's like a balancing tool yeah. but like that's ultimately like and i think that was like a challenge that a lot of people had when they were first learning civilization is like they could get confused because they would look at the board and say look at my board i'm winning clearly and you're like no 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 the game's over here the game's <laughs> on the ast my friend yeah and you're behind you're you're one behind on the ast and that's why you have to go and attack crete you know mm-hmm that type of thing. Okay, so that was rounds. Uh, we touched on player elimination before. Um, you know, just to point out that like player elimination, although we think of this as kind of mean, it's actually like a mainstay of a lot of the most popular consumer board games in American history. I mean, Monopoly is a player elimination game. Yes, Risk is. is a player elimination game. Yep. Um, we also have exhausting resources. A lot of times, games are triggered when something has been exhausted. Um, like we were talking about Race for the Galaxy, that's one yep. one example. Food um, magnet. Fast food magnet, absolutely. And again, like most mo- money is like money, victory points, it's the same thing. But like that's going to be triggered when the bank runs out. Every 18xx, uh, exactly. Yeah. Through through the age, every 18xx is that way? I didn't know that. Um, but by the, the way, 18xx, eight, I'm sorry to interrupt, but 18xx sure. is sort of interesting because it's, um, I, again, I'm a newbie to the hobby, but it's the either the bank runs out or someone goes bankrupt, which is sort of like a little bit of player elimination too. Yeah. And there, it kind of creates this interesting situation where you're probably, I'm a, you know, I imagine you get to a certain point where you are trying to get someone to be bankrupt when you're at the right amount of time, like at the right, where mm-hmm. you're leading everyone. So that way you can like nail down that win. And then that F, then that sort of window may pass if everyone has a permanent train, at which point then you're just trying to now like, pivot to gobble up all the money right which i think is really a unique it's sort of unique to me that the uh, the game could really have sort of like one path ending the game and then all of a sudden it's like oh and now we are changing and it's like a, it's like a mid a, a, like a twist in the middle of the movie right <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh, the final example of this which i think is really great is through the ages through the ages does not have a set number of rounds that game's going to end when you've exhausted the cards 
in the game. Mm-hmm. And like the more I played that game, I realized that there was more to the game in terms of like manipulating the game length that could happen in how people purchase cards. And again, this goes to Paul. Like Paul, a lot of times will kind of get out to a lead in that game, and then he needs to rush the ending. Like he needs to buy up bunches of cards so that because he knows if this game goes one round longer. I'm going to, you know, like my military is going to crush him in a war. So think- like he ne- he needs to bring the game to a close. I think he enjoys exploring the space. <laughs> but he always explores the space the same way. We're talking about the same thing again and again. He's I, always rushing I don't, in the I beginning. Don't think so. No, I give him a lot more credit than that. <laughs> and he's very good. He's very good at that game. He is. He's I'm very just, good at that I'm game. Just messing, I think I'm just messing with him. Like, it, I know you're messing with them, but like we do almost in the same way going back to like the Deluvia project where like I felt like there was a standard way to play. You showed a different way to play. I mean, thank God we have Paul to pivot and press the other buttons to open up because like we can get stuck in our own meta. Yeah. We're not talking about Avalon here. No, but like Paul will take the road less traveled by. Yeah, he will. We absolutely can. Okay. Another ways game can end, uh, completing targets. Um, Dune, like you can kind of say, you know, getting to two points in Dune wins you the game or whatever, but like capturing three. cities three. is yeah. three if you're an individual, yeah, and four if you're in an alliance, blah, sure. blah, blah. But um, you're, you complete a certain number of targets. Uh, Race for the Galaxy, like you get to 12 cards is kind of the, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then maybe a final one, Recovered Sudden Death. Uh, and then like the final one that's kind of of note is like a fixed number of events. Or it's going to trigger the yeah. game. Uh, and like in high society, the game ends when we have Tom. Help me out here. It's like the five. third red card comes out. The thir- when yeah. the third red card is flipped up, the game ends immediately, without that card mm-hmm. being auctioned. And don't the like don't the packs games have like we're gonna like we're flipping yes. cards and when three we played like three wars or something like that or three scores or it, something. It's it's not that it's it's there are event cards that can be triggered. And when they trigger, there is the possibility for the game to to end if certain conditions are met. And in other cases, it is you simply gain score, but you do not have enough score to to trigger the end of the game at that point. But yeah, that's that's yeah. exactly right. Or like uh, uh, Las Vegas, uh, Lords of Vegas, Lords of Vegas has, yeah. has one. By the way, there's also a huge asterisk on all this is that we're not talking about cooperative games here. Because that's a whole different ball game. Well, well, I mean, so we'll talk on that. Like, because what what do you mean? Well, meaning that, like, I mean, I guess they all have like triggers or whatever. But I feel like end game triggers in a cooperative game have a totally different. It's a, I just feel like it's a totally different. Um, <laughs> it's yes, been a while since I've played whatever. pandemic. How does pandemic end? Pandemic can end in a yeah. few ways, right? Like if you. Um, it's sort of like a bunch of these things. Right? If you if you run out of uh, like pandemic cubes to put on the board, then you lose. If um, you You've have exhausted resources, then though, so like exhausted resources. If, if the you've... pandemic slider gets down to a certain level, it ends the game. Right. right. Or if you run out of cards. Yep. But it's, it's but it's like they ha- but it's almost like I feel like with a lot of cooperative games, there is like a um, overlap of various different. It's sort of like uses a lot of these things that we're talking about and mm-hmm. puts and meshes them together in these hybrids, which can be really fascinating. Trey, is well, there I anything else in the Bible? I'm oh, sorry. Well, no, I think we were making a distinction also. Like a lot of these games have single end conditions and others have multiple. Maybe what mm-hmm. Ben's talking about is that these cooperative games tend to have 
a lot are more likely to have multiple end game end game conditions. There's multiple ways that Battlestar Galactica can end with mm-hmm. humans being destroyed, right? <laughs> And that yeah. works narratively really, really well. Well, it's because and, in a cooperative game, in most cooperative games anyway, the game is an engine of its own, right? It's not, mm-hmm. it, it's not players in, and their engines. It's the game is playing its own game, and we are reacting to it to a large extent. Yeah. So is a way to think of these like these are fail states? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right, so, so my question is, is... Top three game ends. What, what are your What are your top three? Or, or, or Trey, I don't want to, to hijack anything. If you, no, no, no. I'm, more, I've, more I've said what on. I wanted to say. So if you've you've got your your list of great game endings, go for it. I got so many. I have so many, but I, I definitely have have some that are do it are better than are better than most. Um, okay, so things that are interesting in in terms of of game ending. I think uh, uh, Mocker, my favorite game of all time, is interesting in the sense that. You go through this game where you are doing one election per round, and you are spending resources not just on the current election, but on the future elections. And then in the last round, it is a super short seventh uh, election where you don't get to do any of the normal stuff. You just basically do election six, and then election seven happens immediately afterwards without any additional uh, materials which I think is a very smart decision because what they're essentially doing is is they're racing you toward the end game. The Great Zimbabwe is very interesting because when you choose different gods, you get different advantages, but it also changes your end state. Your end state becomes suddenly you have to reach 30 points or you only have to, and another person with a weak god has weak advantages, but they only have to score 15 points to end the game. And uh, that's a very interesting thing uh, that, that Splatter does a lot. They do that in uh, antiquity as well. There are different cathedrals that you build, and they give you superpowers. They give you advantages. And there's one that gives you every advantage in the game, but now you have to fulfill two whole victory conditions instead of one in order to win the game, which I thought was was really interesting. Um, I think that Reiner Knizia is great at game endings. I think that's one of his best things. High Society, which you, you, we mentioned, has an amazing game ending in which... You are bidding and bidding and bidding. You don't know when the game is going to end. And when it ends, you immediately count up your points. Most points wins, but least money on hand loses immediately. Mm -hmm. And we know how many points you have. What we don't know is how much money everybody has left. And that is fascinating. How many times... And that's a game that you don't know when it's going to end, too, by the way. Yes, exactly. How many times have you played High Society where the person you're pretty sure is one flips over their money and you realize they have $2 million less than everybody else at the at the table, and it, it's 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 amazing. I also, say Samurai is another great one, where you're battling and battling for all of these rewards on the islands of Japan, but the rewards that you get go behind your screen, and it's only at the end of the game that everybody lifts up their screen and reveals how many of the hi hats you have, how many of the Buddhas you have, how many of those three different symbols, and the the. It's a reveal ending. It's it's kind of a surprise ending where right. I think I'm doing great, but but have I done enough? Now, and it's always it's always right on the razor's edge that game, which is kind of amazing. Uh, but yeah, but, I, go ahead. 
Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think that like, if you have more examples, I, you, I, I don't want to. I no, I, I, have, I, have, I have plenty, but I've been talking for a long time already. So go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I think that like there's it's real. There's really a game where I'll say, oh, I don't like this game because I don't like how the ending is. I don't like how how <laughs> we reveal our points or how this this happens. You know, that will rarely happen. That being said, I do. I do prefer a game that is more of a race game or we're racing for an end game trigger a little bit more than one that has a fixed amount of rounds just because. I like the feeling that we could um, we could, we can control the situation um, that maybe we might there you know it 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 opens up an opportunity for for meta. I can't tell you how many times I've been playing Concordia and I know I'm a few turns away and there's like two cards sitting in the display left and the moment that someone takes those two cards the game is going to be over mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you have to shift into this really fascinating. Um, like new game where you're kind of trying to like maybe put um uh doubt in in someone's head that makes them maybe not want to end the game or maybe you are trying to distract someone away from those two cards or something and like all of a sudden there's a meta going on like you're trying to get people to not finish the game or there is or it could be the flip side where you you i'm ready to finish that game uh i'm ready to finish this game but i need to play my tribune to get my cards back so that way i can play the senator so i can get those cards and oh i also have to get those resources i have to do this all before someone catches up to me which is like a really exciting thing which is why i think uh concordia has that really exciting third act that i was talking about i, I yeah. love that um i feel like in games with rounds you still have amazing an amazing time and i can still feel like a climax um but at the end of the time you know i i just feel like it's more empowering to feel like you're controlling the fate of the game as opposed to, oh, I'm I'm not getting to do all the things I want to do, which is its own fun for sure, but it's a different fun. Um, I will say, by the way, about Deluvia Project, what's kind of cool is that in the final round, the, markets, the market clears Games. off and we have yeah. a, a set market structure that's always the same, which is cool because I think that's really fair to the players. But it also kind of imbues that last round with the sense of like, we have arrived at the final round, ladies and gentlemen. And it sort of does create like a little bit of a pageantry around it that makes <laughs> it feel like like we are here. These now it's time to make our big final last ditch efforts. Well, and the city's complete also at that point. Like visually yes. it looks like a city now and there's no there's very little real estate left. Yes, yep. exactly. Yep. So I think at the end of the day, for me, um I just like a game that ends with an emotional climax, whether it's from victory points or not. When I when I watched that video, the guy was saying about he he made this proclamation that um, uh, if you have to hide your victory points, it's like you're basically having to hide. Isn't it isn't it bad storytelling if you have to hide away like key points to make it more interesting? And I'm like, well, have you ever heard of a murder mystery? I mean, right, I think yeah. that like <laughs> there's there's something about a reveal that is very exciting and it's very like yeah. class it's a classic part of storytelling. I think that's okay. I think with Catan, one thing that I love about Catan is like let's say I've got I've got my uh, I'm at 9 points and I, at at 10 points I'm going to win, but I'm also maybe sitting on longest road and there's someone over there who only has 
six settlements, but they have three development cards face down in front of them. And I don't know what those development cards are. Mm-hmm. They could be three points or they could be three other things. But but they're playing with my mind at this point. And what's happening? What's going to happen? And uh, I'm about to make this move and finish the game and I'm going to win. And then that person, those were three points or whatever it was. They turn over that last card. And it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you with your six things managed to get this victory. And it's like that's that's an exciting moment. And I think those moments in a game, in a finale, where you do have a reveal of some hidden information can be like great that's like what gaming's all about sometimes. Ben, I have no idea what you were just talking about, but it sounds like it might be a good <laughs> game to try at some point. Um, yeah, and listen, and game endings can even have just great moments that are totally separate from who won and who lost. Age of Steam has the break-even applause break, right? Where you finally, <laughs> where you finally broken even, you are no longer in debt, you're no longer bleeding to death, and everybody gives you the nice round of applause. Yay! You are you are no longer you you are no longer in debt and dying, um, mm-hmm. which is which is always great. Uh, a, a lot of games are like that. But for me, I think some of my fav- favorite endings are, first of all, there are narrative endings, right? There are truly narrative endings. Soul, Last Days of a Star is you're, you're trying to gather up enough energy to escape our solar system and, and, and travel the stars. And at the end of the game, you've literally, one person's won and another person's done this and everything, but the book's gives you your outcome based on how many points, you know, what point range you were actually in, which is kind of mm-hmm. kind of cool. Detective is interesting because um, I, I think deduction endings invariably are interesting, right? But detective scores your success. It tells you mm-hmm. how well you did in terms of in terms of solving your case. You know how much more work has yet to be done. If the if the charges that you are are arranging are going to stick or not. I think that's really really interesting. But some of my, uh, I, I think my fav- my three favorite endings are all old school games. They are mm. really that way. Uh, Warlord, the very first podcast, I mentioned my my old favorite game, Warlord, which is just sort of nuclear risk of a sort. Um, at the end of that game, to see the the huge map just filled with nuclear devastation and one person. Uh, it, it, uh, player elimination has has just swept the swept what remains of the board is just such a, an old school pleasure. It's amazing. Kremlin would be my number two, which is you're you're trying to get the your puppet to uh, you know to the to the head of the line to wave at the parade to survive you know to to not you know to not croak and die, and sometimes in that game. You will sit there with all of this influence on this one guy, and you won't spend it. You're going to let somebody mm-hmm. else rise that person all the way to the top, and then right before they're about to wave at the parade, you announce your influence total. You take control of that person, and you steal the game away from them. There are a few. There are a few moments that have been that have happened at a game table where where everybody isn't just screaming and pulling their hair out at, at what just happened which is amazing but the number one number one ending of all time for me is when you get a Benny Jesuit ending for dune <laughs> so I don't know you it's, it's oh, it is the best it's the best thing that it's the best thing in gaming it is the best moment in gaming when you are battling in dune the whole game and you're you're you're, you're fighting with each other and finally these two different groups get together they conquer four different strongholds 
they win the game and they're like, oh, thank, I can't believe we did it. We did it. They're high-fiving each other. And then the person playing Benny Jesuit said, um, excuse me, <laughs> just one moment. At the very beginning of the game, the Benny Jesuit player writes down the name of one faction and writes down the round in which they will win. And if that happens, if that faction wins in that round of the game, they reveal their, their prediction and then that team does not win. Only the Bene Gesserit win. And oh, that's it, fun. Oh, because the Bene Gesserit are, are one of the weakest powers, and yet their power can aid or harm people. And so yeah, it's, the, it's the shooting the, shooting the moon. Yes, essentially. Yeah. it is. It's shooting the moon. Like, oh. Well, also, me, you know, I think. Yeah, oh, sorry. Sorry, Trey. You go. No, I mean, uh, looking at our own group here. I think there's a reason why we've played hundreds and hundreds of games of Avalon is that Avalon almost inevitably has a great ending. Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. know, like that always works. And, you know, maybe just to kind of like f- for me and then we'll get back to you, Ben, like going back to my original point of like the ending should be appropriate to the game. Um, like these endings, uh, it really is about emotion. Yeah. A, a lot of times. And there's when we were kind of talking about like games that can have a variable ending where it's not a set number of rounds. Like when we play when you play Zolk, I'm going to play uh, talk about some games that are kind of comparable here. It, um, when you play Zulkin, there's a set number of rounds, but you can kind of like it, you can advance the game earlier. You know, like remember, you can kind of when you go first, you can choose to advance the wheel a little bit quicker. But generally, like you can see the end of the game and you can plan. You know, like, I got four rounds yeah. left to do this. What am I going to do? And a lot of games don't want to do that because it can create AP where you have this, like, calculation both in terms of, like, what do I have to do? But also, who's winning? What's their exact score? I have to play optimally. And, like, it, and the whole thing grinds down. It still it still works in, in Zulkin. But, like, two games recently in which the game can kind of, like, end early are Teotihuacan and Maracaibo. Mm. And in Teotihuacan... Like the eclipse can be triggered earlier by people ascending their workers quicker, and a lot of times I'm playing that game and I'm like, okay, my I can my game is going to be great as long as I can have three more actions, right? And like, and inevitably I don't get those three actions. Yeah. Um. But for whatever reason, like that doesn't bother me. Like I can see the board. It's like, of course Paul's going to ascend. Of course. <laughs> um. And like that just feels like, okay, that was part of the game and that was like satisfying. And I feel like, okay, well done. Um, and emotionally, like even when I like lose in that, like the way the game comes to an end feels organic, feels right for what they're doing. Whereas for me, like I bounced off Maracaibo pretty hard and I know other people haven't. But like when I've played Maracaibo and, and you see people like rushing that game to an end, like it just annoys me. It's like why uh, I just want to play the damn game, mm, and you're yeah. just bringing it. You're bringing it to a close, and like I'm, I'm not even like I'm not able to do any of the things I want to do in this game because you just keep on taking quick turns. I don't want to play this. Like I'm and like, like there's I'm sure there's a lot of really great game there, but like emotionally, I'm in a bad place a lot of times when that game ends, and so I don't want to play it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that I think that also like you want a game that like the ending not only elicits like a really exciting theatrical, you know, moment, but you know, it feels appropriate for what you're playing too. I, 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 you know, you, you want to feel like this is, this is an exciting coda on the gaming experience. And another game that we played recently was the cost. And one issue that we discussed in it was uh, when we had our playthrough, when Paul destroyed the earth and, um, 
we and he's and he and he got to win. There was no negative repercussion. <laughs> he was rewarded for doing. And so I actually just a few days ago, even before this topic, uh, there was a, there was a there was a thread going on on Board Game Geek about about the game, about like you know negative repercussions for mining unsafely. And so I asked the designers. Uh, I said, you know, recently we played a game where the guy who destroyed the world he didn't receive any. There was nothing negative. Like he didn't. It wasn't like. There was no incentive for him to stop destroying the world because the moment that he closed out all those markets, then, um, you know, the game would win. be over and he would yeah. win. Yeah. And the designer said, yeah, because in real life, um, if you were to do that, it's not like their profits go away. They sell their money and they can go buy their yachts and yada, yada, yada. I mean, I might have countered that actually, well, they no longer have their markets to sell their, their stuff to. But they were kind of of the mindset. <laughs> the of The world like, ended. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, the world, I mean, it's not like the world ended. It's just the markets closed down. And so they were of the mindset of like, well, yep, this is what happens. And like, you, like they basically like, we made that, we put in that game system to serve a narrative function. Yeah, inequality-opoly, so, right? It's the same as inequality-opoly. They're, 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 it's, they're making a, they're making a point uh, and it may come at the detriment of gameplay, but that's, but sometimes you make that decision. Yeah, and so it's funny because it's almost as if the the speaker in the video was saying that the problem with the victory points is that um, it takes away from the narrative arc. Mm. And uh, here we had a situation where actually the narrative arc was preserved, but was it really the best ending in terms of fun and gameplay? Maybe not, you know? Yeah, and once again... It does every must every game be fun? Is that is that one of the requirements for some people? Yes, for some people, maybe not. Maybe the maybe the medium can withstand some some other goals and some other design uh, design imperatives. Which is yeah. Interesting, gentlemen. Uh, we are not going to have time for a uh, for a game sommelier today. We are running a little bit long, but I, 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 for the best reason possible, I think think this is a fascinating topic. Uh, I, it's do the we kind have of an endgame trigger? Is that what you're saying? We do. <laughs> we, we've, we've, just, our ending, yes. we've just hit it. We've just hit it. <laughs> it was it was a fascinating subject. I could talk about this for for another hour, no problem whatsoever. It was a really great topic. Thank you, Trey. Great. Uh, and and guys, I had such I had such a fun. I'm glad Trey that you were happy for me to win for the first time ever, uh, <laughs> because I had a great time playing. Let uh, us mark this date in history. history. Let us let us write it down into the book. Into the book, it shall go. Um, it shall not be a second. <laughs> it was. I was happy for you too, Tom. Oh, thank you, Ben. But you're 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 often happy for me. Outwardly you're, facing. You're a positive. Outward, outwardly facing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, folks, we have a YouTube channel. It's youtube.com forward slash c forward slash game brain pod. We have a Facebook group and a Discord channel that are popping. We have. Uh, as of yesterday, we had 666 uh, uh, people in our Facebook group. Ooh. Get in those board game sommelier questions. And you've been listening to Game Brain, produced and edited by Matthew Robinson and Tom Donnelly. Special thanks to Daedalus for our incredible music. You know him as Alfred on the Shore. Show more on Daedalus at GameBrainPod.com. You can also reach us by email at contact at GameBrainPod.com or on Twitter at GameBrain underscore pod. Thanks for listening, and go play some games with friends online, or virtually make some friends with games.